Only Kmart in America will open at 8 a.m. for a Thanksgiving sale. Check your Kmart circular. You'll find pages of great gift values for every person on your list. The nationwide Thanksgiving sale. Tomorrow only, starting at 8 a.m. at the Kmart near you. Welcome, everybody, to another exciting episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. This week, we're going to change it up a little bit, and I'm going to call it Saturday Night Movie Guestovers. Oh, I like that. And uh, because under, uh, instead of my usual cohort, uh, Dion, I'm talking to a good friend of the podcast, Mighty Mike Vanderbilt. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, thanks thanks for, for having me, uh, Jay Blake. Thanks for... Uh, Coming and sleeping over at my mom's house. I know it's a little awkward. Ah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I've I've slept I've slept just about everywhere in the Chicagoland area on most couches and uh, uh, around the greater Midwest. So taking a trip, sleeping on your couch uh, at your mom's place, it's it's really not so bad. It's one of the best better places I've stayed at. Yeah, I I, I like your sleeping bag. It's a it's a nice one. Well, you know, Empire Strikes Back. I mean, what else? What, what other sleeping bag would you expect? Vintage. I love it. <laughs> it's still got pee stains on it from when I was a kid. <laughs> and we've now uh, eaten ourselves into a coma with a big bucket of pizza. Oh, man, those bucket of pizza. I've been hearing all about the bucket of pizza. Now, I'm from Chicago originally, and I like to think we know a thing or two about pizza. Yeah, yeah. And I'd like to, I'd like to go on record as saying... I. Chicago style is not necessarily deep dish. I don't know how that all got wrapped up, but uh, the true Chicagoan appreciates a thin cracker crust. Is that true? Interesting. Oh, yeah. yeah. That deep dish thing, I don't know. I don't know how that got all wrapped up in Chicago. I know a lot of people think of thin crust as a New York thing, Mm -hmm. but I I never... uh, That was always for... uh, the uh, the north side kids would eat deep dish pizza. Us south side kids, we preferred the uh, the thin crust. Interesting. I know uh, where, <laughs> where Dion's from in New Haven, uh, outside of New Haven, and in New Haven, there's some pizza places that go with the extra thin, the extra thin That's, crust as well. What do you prefer? What do you prefer? I'm not picky. You know, I'm a, <laughs> I, I I'll eat just about anything. Uh, it's all good to me. I like variety. I think that's like my biggest uh, fault. You know, I, I, I'm overweight. I'm not in shape anymore. <laughs> and I think it's because I like variety. Like, I will I want some of this and some of that. I like to, you know, change it up, even in one meal. I like a couple of different things going on. So I, I am a big fan of sides. I always want at least two sides. If I can get three sides with a meal, I'm happy with that again because of the variety thing. And I'm not a fussy eater. It's good to know. Uh, so <laughs> if anybody, if anybody's looking to take me out, I'm, I'm a cheap date. Uh, it's easy. I mean, just three sides. Like I'm going to order the French fries. I'm going to tomorrow, get the tomorrow fries. morning for breakfast. We'll have uh, we'll have pancakes and three sides. Oh, and that's another thing. Pizza's always better the next day, either cold or at room temperature. I totally agree. Uh, that is something. <laughs> I'll I prefer it. I'll even go, to, and it's probably not even like hygienic. But when I go to like a pizza place, a pizzeria. And they they want to put it in the oven to heat it up because it's been sitting on the counter. I'm like, no, no, that's okay. I'll take it just the way it is. I I, I am I am right on board with you with that. I, uh, 
hot, forget it. Like, can you let it sit at room temperature for about an hour before I before I get in on that? It's got that like cheese and pepperoni grease, like all solidified on top of it. Well, like, there's a place around. Like, I'm a, uh, over on my side of town in Chicago. Fox's Pizza is my favorite. Thin crust, been around forever. A couple different locations. But uh, in uh, the suburb that's right next door to me, Beggar's Pizza is a big thing. And Beggar's big thing is that they lay it on thick. And I really don't dig it. They get, like, they put too much stuff on it. But if you let it sit out, like, and once everything kind of congeals, it's a little easier to to handle. Like, it's all going to stay on the pizza. Oh, totally. I mean, when it's too hot, then you got things, like, falling off the side, sticking out the bottom. Uh, And you got to do it... That thing, because you didn't wait. Like, you know, the, yeah, the pizza's yeah. there. You could have just chilled out for a minute, but you're, you know, you're hungry because you've been waiting on it for 45 minutes. And you got that molten cheese, like, adhering to the top of your mouth. <laughs> it just melts everything <laughs> right off. Well, anyway, uh, for our people listening to the show today, uh, Mike is uh, a listener as well. But uh, you have a lot of stuff going on. I can't even keep track of it all. So, so, for, so for the people that want to know who the hell is this guy and why is he talking on this show, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background in terms of the sites you write for, the podcasts you do, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> this, this did cross my mind today when I was uh, at my day job. Or it's, I guess it's a, sometimes it's a day job, sometimes a night job because I'm a bartender by trade. But I was thinking, God, where am I going to start? With, uh, with uh, well, where, what do you do? So I guess first and foremost, I'm an assistant editor over at Daily Grindhouse, where I also contribute. Uh, and we're, uh, it's a website that's been around for a while. I kind of came in uh, over the past couple of years as a writer. They asked me if I wanted to be an assistant editor, and I said, yeah, absolutely, why not? And uh, they focus mostly on horror, but we touch on Hollywood stuff, too. Uh, I also freelance for the AV Club, which a lot of people know and a lot of people seem to really dig that site, and I like writing for them. Uh, mostly on the Newswire, if you're looking for my name. I also contribute to Night Flight, uh, which, I mean, as far as a Saturday night movie sleepover in the 80s, like, when you caught Night Flight, you knew you were up way too late. Uh, night Flight was always a nice collection of, like, music videos and short films and all sorts of counterculture stuff. And they have a streaming service, which uh, I kind of write kind of copy like I, I find a movie like my last big piece was about Ilsa the Wicked Warden which is kind of like the never say never again of the Ilsa series if you're into the whole sexploitation thing <laughs> uh, yeah. I, and then uh, I pod um, I also is that it for the I also I also contributed to Consequence of Sound interviewed Cheap Trick for the Chicago Reader which is kind of our I think the reader would be the equivalent of New York's Village Voice is what I would say for you New York listeners and um, I recently had an article published in Fangoria where I yeah, interviewed Tommy, McLa- that's Tommy very, McLaughlin. That's very exciting. Just, tell us just a little bit about that. Well, that was, that, was, uh, that was really cool because I noticed one thing they taught me at the AV Club about uh, writing was the, about timeliness, about uh, look, at, look for anniversaries. Look for stuff that's going on that you can tie something to. And I noticed that Friday the 13th Part 6 was having its 30th anniversary this year in August. So I pitched it to the AV Club, and they didn't go for it. Uh, but they suggested, well, why don't you try, you know, like a horror site? Like, and I'm thinking, well, if I'm going to write for a horror site, which one do I want to write for? Well, I want to write for Fangoria, you know. I got my first issue when I was eight years old in 1988 because 
something that comes up in my writing quite a bit, that there were no boundaries in the Vanderbilt household. I think basically my mother said, well, if I buy you Mad and Cracked and Fangoria, will you just like not knock anybody up in, when you're a teenager and don't drink till you're like 19 or 20? Like, All right, Ed, that's fair. That's fair, <laughs> as long as I get my magazines every month. And um, I, t- I, had, I talked to Tommy McLaughlin. And I said, would you be interested in doing an interview? He said, absolutely. I said, hey, Fangoria, I write for the AV Club. Would you uh, be interested in this? And they said, uh, absolutely. And I sat on the phone with Tommy McLaughlin one you know, morning in July. And uh, what a treat he was to interview. He is The hardest part of that interview was editing it because he, he talked. And he gave me so many great stories that... I didn't know where to start, so when I finally sent it to Fangoria, they said, well, it can only be 3,000 words. And I said, well, I'm not sure what to cut. And the guy says, I'll figure out what my readers, I'll figure out what the readers want to do. And I got published in Fangoria. Now, apparently, there's a hard copy of it coming out. But, I mean, as you know, Jay Blake, as an author, uh, print, as Egon Spengler said, may be dead. Yeah. And everything's digital these days. So you can pick up the last issue of Fangoria that was guest edited by Kevin Smith uh, that featured my, uh, my interview with Tommy McLaughlin. You know, I was really happy with how it turned out, too. Uh, we touched on a lot of stuff about how uh, one thing I never knew, that he was actually offered Scream, which I think was a, uh, Friday the 13th Part 6 was a major influence on that whole meta-horror thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, especially I mean, the film that we're, that we're going to discuss tonight. The 80s was absolutely the 80s was kind of the the start of that, even if it wasn't as on the nose as something like Scream. I always say when you get to those later sequels of the Friday the 13th and the Nightmare on Elm Street and stuff like that, and they start to become a little bit of a parody of themselves in a way. Oh, absolutely. And then uh, with tonight's movie, Fright Night from, oh, 19, yeah. from 1985, Wait, it's definitely tell everybody of, what we're doing tonight, Jay Blake. <laughs> We're going to go a little unorthodox. It's not exactly a Thanksgiving film, but uh, we're recording this for uh, our Thanksgiving episode. Uh, but we're doing Friday I'm night. Sure I've watched this on, I'm sure I've watched this on Thanksgiving at least once or <laughs> twice just because it was on cable. And, you know, this is one of those movies. Uh, I don't know what it, about for you, but, like, this happens to me. There's, there's quite a few movies like this where if I catch it, on, if it's on TV in the middle of the day, like, okay, there goes my afternoon. Yeah. Like, let me just see what part it's at. And next thing you know, oh, I just sat for down for the whole thing. I know. My my movies like that are ridiculous. I mean, mine are like, I'm all, you know, I always say I don't have guilty pleasures because I don't ever feel guilty about the things I like. But sure, if I, if I was going to have guilty pleasures, they would be like the movies that I just watch whenever they're on. <laughs> Which is like, um, which is like the replacements with Keanu Reeves. I, you know, I've I've never seen that, but I was very disappointed that it had nothing to do with Paul Westerberg and Tommy Stinson. I was like, every time I searched for replacements, I'm like, no, not the football movie, the band from Minneapolis. Yeah, or uh, music and lyrics with Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore. For some reason, I watch I, it every time it's on. I don't even know that one, but there's two movies, like I guess similar to that where I've watched the whole thing of Bride Wars and Cocktail completely on accident. <laughs> like Cocktail was one of those movies that was on at my old apartment that I was living in with the guys that I host the uh, Drinks on Monday podcast with and uh you know it was just starting. We left it on. You know, ninety minutes later, holy shit, we just watched we just watched Cocktail. <laughs> and I don't know how we'd never none of us had ever seen the whole thing of Cocktail before that point. Hell of a soundtrack. <laughs> 
Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, all, that's, that's the most thing I remember about is, uh, is the, that soundtrack on tape or, or on CD back in the 80s. It was a big deal. Kokomo. You know, I, and Dirty Dancing is another one I don't think I've ever watched the movie in one sitting. I'm surprised you guys haven't covered that one yet. I think it sits nicely aside uh, Grease as far as sleepover movies, particularly for the young ladies in the neighborhood and the guys who didn't want to admit that they were watching Dirty Dancing. We've talked about doing it uh, a number of times, especially, you know, I think, you know, as summer's starting, you know, we we try to, we do our best to kind of, you know, have it, have whatever we pick kind of correlate with <laughs> what's happening in the time of year. And it has, it's, it it's has perfect though. That, it has come, that, that works well. Yeah, it has it has come up quite a bit, and uh, I, I'm sure we will get to it at some point. <laughs> no, yeah, and I, I, I mean a little bit about my history with the show. Like you guys, I can't remember how I found out about your show, but I think it was an ad on Facebook, and you guys were talking about Transformers the movie. It's a, you know this this podcast is talking about Transformers the movie, and I said, well, that's it. I'm going to listen to this, and then immediately went back and listened to all the past episodes before that. Although I don't think there were that many just yet. And uh, as I was telling you before we were starting the show, you know, you know, we were get, getting ready for the sleepover. Um, <laughs> yeah, get all bundled that, up in, uh, our, in our jammies. Yeah, we were, you know, actually trying to get to sleep. You know, <laughs> even though it wasn't going to happen because we were up fucking playing, as my dad would say, high school grab assing. <laughs> and I just loved the concept of the show because you guys seemed to be right around my age, and you were talking about the movies that uh, I mean. I watched it sleepovers all the time too, and uh, this is a red letter day for me because this is the first time I do also do two other podcasts: the Drinks on Monday podcast and the uh, Revenge of the Pod People podcast, which is another movie centric one. And this is my first time appearing on somebody else's podcast, so thank you for uh, letting me come on. I, I I love the show, long long time listener, first time caller, <laughs> and. Uh, I, I couldn't be happier to be talking about Fright Night with Jay Blake of uh, the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Yeah, I mean, we uh, we just had quite a discussion about trying to figure out what we would do. Was there a Thanksgiving movie we could come up with? Maybe a Christmas movie? And I was just like, well, what do you... Let's not worry about that stuff. Just what are you passionate about? Like, what movie do you love? And you're just like, well... I'm pretty passionate about Fright Night. <laughs> I, and I, I, I really am. I really am. <laughs> and I was like, um, I was like, it's a little close to we just did a shitload of horror movies for for Halloween. <laughs> but you know what? Screw it. I'm a horror fan. You're a horror fan. It's a horror. We're having a horror horror night movie sleepover. And that's that's what I said. Like, I mean, let's just go with. I mean. You just wrote a book about horror movie composers. Like, I am the assistant editor of a horror movie site. Like, why, why step outside of the box? Yeah. Let's go for the easy win here, man. Why fight it? <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And it has. Here we are, sitting here talking about Fright Night. Yeah. Been up all night. Now, Tom Too Holland. Jolt Cola. Yeah, Meg, got the Mega Jolt Cola pumping at three liter, not even the two liters. <laughs> <laughs> We're uh, belly full of a bucket of pizza, and we're oh, we yeah. just finished. Ready to go. We just finished Fright Night. Now I have to say, Tom Holland uh, is one of the many people that was gracious enough to look over my books, scored to death, and write a blurb for it. So uh, I will forever be grateful to him for giving me a little bit of promotion for the back cover of Scored to Death. How how that come about? How did Tom Holland get in ho- uh, get a hold of you? Well, it was more about getting a hold of him, and it was uh, okay. 
I don't know. Tom Holland's a pretty accessible dude, so I wasn't sure if he's like, hey, I, I want to be in this book. I want to be in this. Um, it was actually kind of funny uh, because I was trying to figure out who would be good, who would be a good fit, who might do it, who I would love to have a blurb from. You know, who has you know. It's it's a tricky thing. That's one thing they don't they don't kind of teach you about when you're <laughs> there's no when you're writing a book for the first time. Nobody tells you like, oh yeah, when it's done, you have to approach every single person you can think of that might be able to uh, help you in terms of writing a blurb for it or forward or anything like that. So with Tom Holland, what happened was I went through to his website, which I guess his son runs, and his son said. Uh, I'll forward it to my dad. This sounds like something he might be willing to do. Um, somebody that got back to me is someone that you interviewed, which is you 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 interviewed. Uh, I can't think of his name, unfortunately. But the guy that was like the da- music, da- da- David Sh- David Shackler, the guy that did the he did the music direction or something. Yes, for- he did. He was the executive producer and the uh, uh, music supervisor, the soundtrack supervisor. And you interviewed him about. Uh, you talk probably you talk quite a bit about Friday night in your interview, right? Oh yeah. Well, we I, I'm saving that for later because that's uh that's that that's got some good that's some good stuff in there. Yeah, he's a, he's a cool dude, and him and Tom Holland have worked together forever. Yeah, yeah. So he got back to me. He's like, "Yeah, Tom will do it," but we're both really surprised that you didn't interview, <laughs> you know, Brad Fidel or you know any of the other number of great composers he's worked with. And I was like. I felt you know, it was very awkward because I had to be like, well, it wasn't like I was didn't want to interview them. <laughs> sure, yeah, I mean, you, you know, sometimes well, Brad Fidel wants to Brad Fidel wants to interview. If sure, I guess. I mean, yeah. if I have the time, I'll. Uh, you know, the guy who did Terminator, yeah, maybe, I guess. All right. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was the I'd never done this kind of thing. I mean, I've interviewed people for websites and stuff like that, but I've never really just on my own just went out and did a book just to see if I could get it published just because I wanted to read it. So I was really flying by the seat of my pants. And so a lot of it just had to do with like, who could I find contact information for? <laughs> like yeah. who got back to me? Stuff like that. So it was a little yeah. bit awkward where I had, I felt like I had to explain, like I wasn't trying to avoid having him <laughs> in the book. It just didn't, <laughs> it just didn't happen this time. It, it's funny that you tell that story. Cause I mean, Without, you know, I mean, we're going to get, hey, we're going to get around to talking to the, talking about the movie eventually. I mean, you've listened to the show before. You know how it goes. Right? Right, listeners? <laughs> um, but it, like, this is, uh, mo- Tom this is movie adjacent, at least. <laughs> the, uh, the, my Tom Holland, like, I interviewed Tom Holland for the AV Club for the 30th anniversary of Fright Night. And that's also how I ended up with the Dave Chackler interview. And what had happened was because the AV Club kind of taught me about, you know, striking when there's an anniversary i saw fright night one of my favorite movies what can i do and i'm like and what can i do can i write about this can i write about that And i think to myself i'm tending bar on a saturday morning at the the major chain restaurant that i work for because uh, this is what I, it's not all glamorous being a writer and a podcaster and a musician as you can attest to yes definitely. i'm at my day job I'm like, I'm like well what can i do and i was like you know what i'm gonna see if i can interview tom holland so i go on his page i go hey i'm I write for these two sites. I think I pitched it for Daily Grindhouse. I didn't realize. I was like, if the AFP Club will pay me, great, sure. And um, his uh, he got back to me off of his website. I think it was him and said, here, email um, Carrie Dunlap, his, uh, his PR person, his wrangler. And I emailed her. She thought it was a great idea. 
I and next week I was talking to Tom Holland on on the phone, and that's all it took, you know. And it was because he was very accessible and he was ready to talk about Fright Night. And I ended up with the Shackler interview because, like you were talking about, you wrote that book because it was something that you wanted to read. Yeah. There's a song on the Fright Night soundtrack that we I will talk about later uh, called Boppin' Tonight that I always dug. I dug since I was a kid and I bought the tape, but I could never find anything out about it. I could not find out who this band out who found out who this band of Fabulous Fontaines were. I searched high and low. I couldn't find any stories about it. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna find out for myself. So getting a hold of Tom Holland, I was just like Tell me about this band. He goes, well, I don't know anything about that. You want to talk to Dave Chackler. So then I called Dave Chackler the next day on a Friday afternoon, and he thought he was in for like a 15-minute inter- interview, and we ended up staying on the phone for an hour going track by track on the Fright Night soundtrack. <laughs> and he could, he was over the moon because he, nobody ever wanted to sit down and go song by song on the Fright Night soundtrack with him. Everybody always wants to talk to his director friend. It was pretty cool. It was it was pretty cool, and then he had ended up uh, putting me on the guest list when they showed Fright Night down here uh, at the Bruce Campbell Horror Film Festival, which was kind of cool because I got them both to sign my uh, my LP of the Fright Night soundtrack. Oh, beautiful! Yeah. So, in a full disclosure, I did not. This is not a film that I grew up with. Okay. And I wish I did because I know I would have loved it. <laughs> <laughs> But, I have plenty like that that I don't understand. How did I miss this one? You know, like of all the movies that I saw, how did I miss that one? But uh, you're passionate about Friday Night. I want to hear about like when did if you remember when you discovered it, and like how it's how it's been a part of your life. <laughs> Absolutely, no, I can talk about this I, at length. Probably, I mean, I guess it, I mean it's it's not that interesting a story. I mean. So growing up on the south side of Chicago, um, we were one of the first uh, families on our block to have a VCR. My mom and dad always liked movies. Every date they went on was for the movies. Like uh, They saw Jaws, they saw Star Wars, they saw the good ones, and then uh, they couldn't go out to the show anymore around, right around 1980 because they had this bundle of joy <laughs> right here. And, but they had a VCR, and uh, my mom would always rent. It was always three. So when, even when I rented movies like as a teenager, I always tend, tended to rent movies in threes. Yeah. Like you'd have one for Friday, one for Saturday, one for Sunday morning before you had to return them. And uh, my mom liked horror movies, which is funny because now she can't even watch Nightmare on Elm Street movies because she'll, she'll have nightmares. Yeah. Like she's a grown woman, can't even watch Nightmare on Elm Street. And uh, her, sometimes her friend Mary, who she used to work with, the phone company, would come over, and every Friday, it was Friday nights, and they would rent three movies, generally horror movies, because that's what they liked, and they'd watch them. So the first time I remember really hearing about Fright Night probably would have been in 86 when it came out on video, and I wasn't at home watching it. I just knew it was, you know, it came out in, on video in August of 86. So I was out running the streets that night until 9 o'clock or whenever the streetlights came home, and I was aware of it, and I knew they were watching it. I don't think I actually probably saw the movie in its entirety probably till I was about eight or nine. And just, I, I, I liked vampire movies, but I liked, and I liked horror movies, but I always preferred horror movies, particularly at that age, that uh, had that comedic bent because I didn't like to be too terrified by things. As much as I grew up with horror and, you know, buying Fangoria at uh, eight years old, like my mom was always threatening me on Sunday nights when I couldn't go to sleep. If you, 
if, if you can't go to sleep before school tonight, I ain't buying you no more of the magazines. I ain't renting no more of those movies. And I would do it every week. Like, we'd go down to my grandma's house, and I'd rent three horror movies. And then I'd be terrified when I was going to bed that night. Like, the, the opening, I can't even, the opening, like, Tales from the Dark Side is kind of a silly show when yeah. you look back on it now. But that opening terrified me as a child and would come on Channel 9 at 10 o'clock on Sundays. And if I didn't change the channel fast enough, I don't know what I was watching before that. That was it. I was up till 3 in the morning. Scared. Yeah, totally. That, the music, that, that, that opening still kind of freaks me out. Oh, I, 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 I watch it and I know I shouldn't and it gets me. You know, I'm like, you know, you know, it's the, dark up in the kitchen. Kids... <laughs> You know, kids today they they have the they have the you know the Walking Dead and I mean there's there's obviously horror uh, television programming but the 80s was a very unique time for horror horror television shows. I think with the internet and everything, it just makes people. Uh, when I was a kid, it just felt everything felt scarier and felt more mysterious. And I don't know if that was because I was a kid, but I think a little bit of it's like you don't have instant access to the actors and everything like that as you do now via Twitter or Facebook. Like, I think felt, stuff felt more real to kids in the 80s. I think kids in the... I mean, I don't know. I'm not a kid now, but I don't know if that's a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was also... Uh, I don't know. It was just an interesting time because, you know, then you had, like, the horror movie icons, too, because, I mean, there was Jason and Freddy... I mean, I say I even talk about it a little bit in my in the in the preface of my book because it was like these guys are rock stars. I mean, there was you know people. I we used to know. I used to know this kid that lived on my block, and uh, he was a little bit older, and he was amazing at Nintendo. He he was just amazing. Oh, so at he it. was he he was the king of the block. That guy. <laughs> And I remember sometimes I'd be playing like basketball or something in one of the driveways of me and like my next door neighbor. And then he would come over and he lived all the way on the other side of the block. And he's like, I'm about to beat this game. I have it paused. You guys want to come and watch me do it? Oh, my God. We had a kid just like that. Danny McInerney. He was older than all of us. And I hung out with his younger brother. And he would he was he was just really good. He was just really good. And the same thing. I have it paused. (laughs) I remember those moments. But he used to his Nintendo was set up in his basement, and his basement wasn't like made over or anything. I mean, it was just like cement walls and and beams, unfinished, as they say. Yeah, yeah, it was unfinished. But hanging above the above the television was this poster of Jason without his mask on. (laughs) (laughs) And you remember which movie it was from? You remember which movie? I'm guessing three. It it could have been. I want to feel like it was later than that. I mean, okay. uh, just by to my recommend, my recollection of like what he looked like, I think it was a little bit later than that. It might have been even been like uh, you know, maybe eight. Does he show? Is his face okay. an eight? <laughs> seven. You know, his his face is prevalent in seven. So I'm thinking it was probably seven. It might have been seven, but so probably much- a pullout Scream Greats poster from Fangoria. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And uh, my my point is like we had there's kids that had. You know, posters, and I had a Freddy. It was like a, I had like a, it was like a Barbie doll, but it was Freddy Krueger. <laughs> oh yeah, no. Um, well, there there was the Max FX toy where you he, he the the line was supposed to be, it was going to be a he was a uh, a Hollywood stuntman, and he would come with different outfits, and they were going to release him as an alien from Aliens. And they had a the first one that came out was a Freddy Krueger. Yeah, that's that the that's on. the one. That's the one. 
And then there was a little knockoff that didn't wear any shoes that you would get at like the Walgreens or uh, that which was like the the the, the, the drugstore around here. And then there was the Talking Doll, which I got later in life. And uh, Freddy Krueger's a fascinating character to me because I mean, <laughs> he's basically a child molester that became as popular as Prince or Bruce Springsteen or Madonna <laughs> in the 1980s. Yeah, that's what I mean. They were rock stars. He was huge. I mean, by four they kind of start whitewashing the like they they kind of backtrack on the uh, the whole child murdering thing because then by then he just kind of became like a a cinematic villain like Darth Vader and like you said a rock star and that's the Freddy Krueger one the Freddy Krueger character fascinates me more than anybody in horror because of that yeah. because he was on kids pajamas and there were toys and it's like mm, I don't know. But with Fright Night, I think one of the first times I definitely remember watching it in its entirety was not at a sleepover, but definitely at a Halloween party that a friend of mine had. And um, I, despite its R rating, I mean, I don't know. It seems like most of the parents of the kids that I grew up with were all pretty cool. Yeah. Because we all watched that stuff. And like that was a, you know, a parent-sanctioned Halloween party in you know, sixth or seventh Great, and they're like, no, well, let's, let's, Fright Night's a good one for them. Let's put that one on. Like it's, I mean, I don't think there's any. Uh, there's a, I think there's a couple bare breasts in it. I think there. If we were doing the Joe Bob Briggs drive-in totals, <laughs> I believe there to be uh, two bare breasts in in Fright Night. I think, and it, it always, it's always funny. I always laugh about that because growing up, like parents always seem to mind less or watch all the violence you want, but like I don't know the nudity. I don't know if they should be seeing all that nudity. Yeah. Yeah, and there was so much of it in the eighties. <laughs> well, you know, it's again um, back to like with the internet. Like when I was growing up, it was like talked about not even by just kids, but by grown ass men. If a movie, you know, had somebody's boobs in it, like and it, you'd see it on like Access Hollywood, like or Entertainment Tonight, rather. Like this is this has full frontal from you know this girl or this 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 actress. And these days, like, it's not that big a deal anymore because you just go online and you can see whatever you want. But when you were a kid, you had to track that stuff down. Like, somebody had to find their dad's nudie mag stash or, you know, somebody had to have the uh, Fast Times Ridgemont High taped off of HBO, not the TV version. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Uh, and I, it's, I, I long for that a little bit. It is a little too easy these days. You really did have to work. Uh, back in my day, kids, if you wanted to see. <laughs> you kids don't know how easy you have it. You, you, know, you can see. <laughs> you, you, you get, you've seen full frontal on, on basic cable. Back in my day. Back in my day, we used to have to walk through the snow with bare feet <laughs> to find porno. Yeah. And yeah, that's funny because I think we actually did usually walk. Uh, we were walking through the snow and would find porno. Like we'd find it in people's uh, garbage. Because another big thing we liked to do when we were kids, because we were all movie fans, is we'd dig through the local video store's garbage for posters and cardboard stand-ups. Nice. And we'd usually get rousted out. Like get out of here, you kids! You know, stop making all that noise. Stop digging through the garbage like a bunch of homeless people, a bunch of vagrants back here. But I made a couple good finds, and one of them actually, <laughs> one of them actually was. Uh, uh, an adult, uh, an adult, uh, adult cinema, I would say. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it was called Black and White Crime. I, <laughs> but that was that was the holy grail amongst the neighborhood kids. Like whoever we trade it back and forth. Whoever wanted that video. Yeah, that's the it's the it's the little things. 
So, yeah, so Fright Night, we watched it, and it, I, I dug it. And then I'd probably say right when I was about 11 or 12, I taped it off Encore with an introduction from the uh, one of the Encore hosts. Back when Encore was first starting out, like uh, their big thing was it was only the best movies of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it was kind of like uh, Turner Classic Movies, where they'd have a host do an introduction and offer a little bit of trivia about the movie. And I taped it off of there, off of Encore, and just started watching it incessantly. Uh, I was a big fan of the uh, the Now Comics series uh-huh. yeah. that they put out. If anybody remembers Now, I read a lot. Of, like I didn't read a lot of comic books, like superhero comic books, yeah. growing up. Yeah, I, but anything that was based on a movie and a lot of stuff from Now Comics was like. Ghostbusters, Fright Night, uh, or even Muppet Babies or Mad Balls. Like, those were kind of the, the comic books that I was into. And uh, I ended up tracking down the soundtrack on tape, which I, I love the soundtrack. Just everything about it, like, just spoke to me. Um, what were your, th- like, when did you first see Fright Night? Oh, to be honest, I probably didn't see Fright Night in its entirety until I was in college. Um, I didn't, my mom. I, for the most part, lived with my mom, and she didn't have cable or VCR or anything. On the weekends, I'd go visit my dad, and he had cable and a VCR. But I don't think I ever, you know, it was probably just I'd seen, like, bits and pieces of Fright Night until I was in college when I started watching a lot of horror movies and got really into things like Monster Vision and whatnot. Um, so, sadly, it's not a movie that I, I, I grew up with. Like I said, I think I would have loved it. <laughs> you know, I was very into the the monsters. Uh, that's the other thing I think a lot of people don't... I mean, I, obviously, I think our generation remembers it, but I think people that aren't of our generation, and anybody that's younger, and I don't know if anybody that's younger actually listens to this podcast, but... <laughs> but I, you know, like the like the universal monsters were still like a big thing when we were little. There was toys and they were featured in commercials for candy. And there was like hot dogs with cheese in the middle called like Frank and Weenies. <laughs> we, uh, we definitely had like because um, we, we definitely had like these really nice PVC uh, universal monster toys that were proudly on display in the house, probably in the kitchen. Like, my mom had some interesting decorating choices sometimes. Like, oh, these will look nice in the kitchen. You know, Dracula, <laughs> Wolfman, Frankenstein, Mummy. And then there was the little um, uh, kenner size ones. Yeah, from, yeah. You know, we we had all that stuff. Yeah, Universal Monsters were huge in her house, particularly Dracula. Dracula always seemed to be a favorite yeah, and among I've, stars. I, and vamp, which probably leads to the vampire thing. Yeah, and I've you know I've talked at length uh, on this podcast in the past about my love for the television show Werewolf from the late 80s. And, um, which I remember what, I always love when you talk about that because it always makes me want to go home because they're on YouTube now, yeah. I believe, and, and get through it because I remember watching clips of it on it was on Saturday afternoons here, like Saturday rather Saturday evenings about six o'clock, and I'd always watch the beginning of it. But I don't know if I had mild ADD or something when I was a kid. But then I'd end up like playing with my toys or something. Like getting, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, just getting distracted by a small shiny. I mean, it, it's not great. But I, when I was a kid, though, I thought it was I thought it was really something special. <laughs> but uh, but fright night. So let's talk about Fright Night. So Fright Night was uh, written and directed by Tom Holland, who got his career. Uh, he started his career as an actor. He studied uh, at the actor studio under uh, Lee Strasberg. Uh, you know, did a couple bit parts here and there, and then I, th- I want to say and now, his first and, and, and now he's playing Spider Man, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I I appreciate that you know I'm all for you know colorblind cl- casting and changing things up. So to go with an older white man <laughs> for the role of Spider-Man in the new films, I thought it was daring and edgy. Uh, I mean, especially for Marvel, who is you know generally the movies are a good C plus B minus across the board. Like I think this is going to be one to talk about when it comes out. <laughs> So his his first movie he wrote was The Beast Within. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you ever see The Beast Within? I don't think I've ever seen it, but the front of the box is oh, emblazoned yes. in my memory. Yes, that was, oh, God. Uh, two video stores from my neighborhood uh, were Village Video and Popcorn Video. Village Video was a little on the nicer side, uh, although they had all four Ilsa movies. I don't know who was right. I mean, we had a predominantly kind of, you know, upper to middle class neighborhood where I grew up. And then popcorn video always had kind of the the sleazier uh, the sleazier movies. That's where you went for your grindhouse stuff and your drive-in stuff. Uh, both of them had a uh, massive pornography section. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that, that, that doesn't matter. You know, low class, high class, like everybody, everybody loves. Back to that, everybody loves adult cinema. But the Beast Within box was always one that I, you know, that the final fifteen. If you can sit through the final fifteen minutes of this movie without screaming or something like that and i was absolutely terrified of it and never rented it until i finally caught it on joe bob briggs monster vision yeah one night shout out and uh yeah, it's okay i guess i don't know it uh, it doesn't have a lot of the tom holland that touches because he didn't direct it either. yeah yeah but um you know it, it was it was definitely not as terrifying as the vox made it out to be but man what a great bit of marketing that was Totally. I mean, that's that's similar to like the Suspiria marketing, which was, you know, the only thing scarier than the, you know, I don't even remember, like the last night ninety minutes of this movie. It's the first ten or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, my friend who I, who plays uh, bass in the Modern Day Rippers with me, he still he has this vivid memory of seeing that Suspiria commercial where the skull turns around. Yeah, yeah, with the wig on, and uh, yeah, just scaring the shit out of him when he was a kid. Uh, so after the Beast, he wrote Beast Within. Then he wrote Class in 1984, which I think is a favorite of you guys, right? Well, we we talk about it. Uh, you know, it's been brought up. We'll definitely get to it at some point. Yeah, for sure. Um, which is it's 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 a good flick. I finally watched it. I had seen Class in 1999, uh-huh. but never tracked down Class in 1984. But I got a Shout Factory Blu-ray of it. Like one thing that's nice about being quote unquote press, yeah, is that you end up with free stuff. And that was one of the things I got, and I watched it. You know, I, I like Tom Holland, and Michael J. Fox is in it, who was a, one of my favorites growing up. And uh, the thing I was struck me about Class 94 is, like, again, like with The Beast Within, it seems very mean-spirited because most of Tom Holland's stuff I always think of kind of having this light touch. But um, I did like Class in 1984, but it definitely is, it seems a little nastier than his usual output. Yeah. Because after that, he wrote Psycho 2. Now, are you a Psycho 2 fan? I am a Psycho 2 fan, actually. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting because, you know, there's a whole other thing. And if we ever do Psycho 2, we'd get more into it. But there's this whole thing about there's, there's, a, there's a sequel book to Psycho called Psycho 2. <laughs> right. And then there's the movie, and it was about, like, well, getting one out before the other and all this. Because they have nothing to do with each other. Um, yeah, I like Psycho 2. I have, I have, I have weirdly fond memories of seeing it, you know, like on TV or something in the, sure. in the past. 
Um, it, it's funny because that was one I don't think. I don't. I, I guess. I mean, he was kind of hot because of that one, but I don't think it was. I, I definitely one of those movies that has become more well regarded, much like Halloween three, like in more recent years. I think. Yeah. And I think it's probably as you as you the further away you get from the legacy of the original, the more willing you are to give a pass to a sequel. Oh sure, I mean especially a psycho to psycho for Christ's sake. Well, <laughs> I mean exactly like oh you're going to make a sequel to Hitchcock? Like good yeah. luck, dude. Like I mean that's on you. Yeah. So then he wrote Scream he wrote for, Scream for Help in 84 and I know this is a definite favorite of the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers guys, Cloak and Dagger. Yeah, Cloak and Dagger is something we've talked about doing many, many times and still haven't gotten. There's so many. We always, like we always say, so many movies, so little time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I guess when uh, the story, because I, I got to interview uh, Tom Holland for, for the AV Club, and what he t- was telling me was that it was, he was on the set of, or he was writing uh, Cloak and Dagger, and he, he, he just had this idea of like a, a take on Rear Window, where a horror, a young horror fan, which was basically him when he was growing up, he was a he was a fan of all the great you know fifties and sixties horror and sci fi. What if a vampire moved in next door and he had to convince everybody that it was a vampire? Yeah, and I think you can see a lot of that. I mean, coming off of Hitchcock and then you know paying homage to Rear Window, you see a lot of that in Fright Night. Oh sure, you know it's uh, and it's like a great like you could t- even if he never said that was like how it came about. It's like the perfect. Uh, like birth of an idea. Like you can totally, when you watch it, someone was like, "What if a vampire moved in next door to a, to a kid?" <laughs> like, like that's the pitch. <laughs> yeah, you're like the the product, the studio offices. All right, get this: a, a vampire grow, grow, moves in to a suburban neighborhood. <laughs> you know, you can totally see like that's like the seed. And then what's gonna what's gonna grow out of that seed? I mean, it's such a great. Kind of little it, concept, it, it, and like you, it, you're 100 percent right with like how small the concept is. Because I mean, that could go any number of ways. That could be a horror movie. That could be a comedy. You know, these days it could be an independent drama. It could be let the right one in for all you know. You yeah, know? true, true. So, um, but Tom Holland was always you know he always had a very I always liked he, I always found his light touch. He was always very playful with the way he wrote it, and that's how. He pitched that idea, and um, they liked what they had, and uh, they started shooting Fright Night. Well, I mean, this was his directorial debut, and then there's, you know, you hear stories about him not being thrilled with the way Scream for Help ended up, and that's kind of why he wanted to go into directing, so that, like, his work wouldn't be fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) He had a little more control over the scripts that he was writing if he directed them themselves. And he had... um, and he had a little bit of clout by that time because things like Psycho 2 and Cloak and Dagger, they were successful. So, um, And Fright Night wasn't a big budget movie. In fact, it was like the smallest budgeted movie for Columbia Studios in like 1985. And they definitely didn't have high hopes for it. Um, let me uh, consult my notes real fast here for a minute because when I was talking to Dave Chackler, he was telling me what were the, the two movies that they had I think one of them was perfect with John Travolta. One of them was perfect and with Travolta, which I don't think I've ever I don't think I've ever seen that one. I don't think I've ever seen it either. I just remember like, you know, you see things with like him and Jamie Lee Curtis in spandex or you know, or like yeah, exactly. or, you know, like workout outfits. 
Aerobic, aerobic, aerobics, aerobics was a very big thing in the eighties. It was it was huge. I mean, you got at least you got two different horror movies about aerobics. So I mean, that's how big it was. Uh, it was perfect, and the slugger's wife. And as Dave Chackler told me, and now nobody remembers either one. Yeah. Well, I mean, that just goes to show you the power of horror. I mean, I think in recent years, horror movies have been getting a little more respect, a little more recognized. Um, because I'm always. Uh, Go ahead. All right, I was going to say, I'm always torn by that because that's when I start getting that hipster indie rock mentality about horror. Like, you know, oh, you, guys thought I was, you guys thought I was a nerd or a dork when I was a kid <laughs> when I was into this stuff, and now you're all walking around in your, your Evil Dead t-shirt. You have bullshit. You know? yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, it's also cool that people are uh, appreciating something that you always appreciated. Yeah. Yeah, I totally, I get that. I mean, there is, a, you know, it's hard not to have ownership over, uh, feel feel ownership over those kinds of things when you feel like, I discovered it first. <laughs> this was mine. Like, you're, you're always mad because people are discovering it, but that whole time when nobody knew about it, you were telling everybody to discover it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, what do you want? What do you want? You can't have it both ways. So no. he had a little more clout, so he got, he directed this one, which is why I think this is, you know, I mean, Tom Holland as an auteur, like you really get this is like the most Tom Holland of of the movies up to this up to this point. And uh, what a terrific cast you have here. Oh, yeah. The cast is is amazing. I mean, Chris Sarandon, who, you know, it's so shocking. I mean, he's in a lot of great movies, but it's shocking that like his career never was bigger than it was. Well, it, it was because I mean part of the I mean part of the reason he was obviously cast in this one is because how ridiculously good looking he is you know and then they put him in all these you know Richard Gere American Gigolo suits and sweaters and Armani and shit and like you're surprised he didn't become more of a leading man. Oh yeah, I mean that and just these I mean he's talented. I mean you even you watch uh, like Dog Day Afternoon. It's got a very small part. Right, but incredibly memorable because because him and Pacino are so good in that in the in the, that scene, and uh, and you're right. I mean, he's he's good looking guy. I mean, he, you know, he had Susan Sarandon in her prime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and another, another character, another actor that I was thinking about that on one of your other podcasts, you guys were talking about last Starfighter was Lance Guest. You want to talk about just like you know. A good actor who was good looking, had everything you'd want out of a leading man, and just, you know, it, it just didn't happen for him. Yeah, it's so weird when that happens. I mean, in a way, you can even, to me, it's like, okay, Bruce Campbell has a following, but I was shocked that Bruce Campbell never really made it even bigger. Even when I was in college, I was like, Bruce Campbell's going to be, he's going to be in everything now because, you know, People that were fans of Evil Dead and stuff, now they're going to be making movies and everybody's going to want to put them in their movies. I mean, like Quentin Tarantino should put Bruce Campbell in a movie. <laughs> yes. Well, Bruce Campbell is someone like, you know, I, you know I, I, I talked to him briefly on the red carpet at a Fantastic Fest and he's, he's a funny dude and he, he's, still, he's still good looking. But like when you go back and look at him, like Briscoe County Jr., Army of Darkness, when he was primed for superstardom. Yeah, yeah. Like it's one of those, it's a damn shame that he wasn't in everything and just didn't become like as big as George Clooney. And I blame a lot of that on Dino De Laurentiis not releasing Army of, letting Army of Darkness get released 
in August of 91 and instead dumping it in February of uh, 92. I think there's an alternate timeline where that movie came out in August when all the best trash is supposed to come out, like when Fright Night came out yeah. and could have been a hit and should have been rated PG-13. But that's a discussion for another podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> that's a totally different podcast and a movie that I could, <laughs> uh, that I could talk to forever. I mean, talk about forever. That's a movie. We were talking about how Fright Night's a movie that when you see it on TV, you'll watch it. Uh, Army of Darkness is a movie I can put on anytime. I used to have, I used to have like this me- back in the day. I like, I don't know, ten years ago, or maybe a little less, when MP3 players were becoming the rage and everybody was going with the uh, the iPods, and uh, I had this giant f- player MP3. Was player. it a creative? Was it? Was it a creative nomad? Because that was the one I went with, and I should have just gone Apple. <laughs> now, I had this one where like, it had this giant screen, because you could put movies on it. And, okay. uh, and it was this enormous thing. And I always had just, you know, I would all constantly be switching out movies, because I was traveling a lot for, I was freelance, and I was not living in the city. So I was doing a lot of traveling back and forth, and mm-hmm. had a lot of time to kill. So I would, uh, I would listen to Stern in the morning, and then on my way home, I would watch, you know, as much of a movie as I could. So I would always be switching out movies. But the one movie that was on there always was Army of Darkness because I always knew in a jam and I, if I was <laughs> ever, really held, <laughs> ever really held up anywhere and I just needed to kill some time, I could always just put on Army of Darkness and, uh, and watch it and enjoy myself. And then that's one of those movies that Dion and I like to talk about a lot, which is uh, the kinds of movies where the TV version – there's like drastic differences between the television version oh, sure. of Army of Darkness well, and uh, the the regular theatrical version that we're kind of more familiar with. Although nowadays, the thing about Army... I was going to say, but uh, you know, nowadays with the DVDs of the director's cut and stuff, I mean, people are probably less familiar oh. with that original theatrical cut. But forever, that's the, the only the, way the you theat- can see it. The theatrical cut's my favorite because the theatrical cut is what taught me the power of an eighty-minute movie. I don't, I don't think most movies need to be over eighty minutes. Like. Like '90s good, but '80s better. Like Army of Darkness, there is no filler in that movie, whatsoever. Like the theatrical version. Like I love that there's a you know we have all these great. I mean, you want to talk about how many times have people double dipped on Army of Darkness? Like it's up <laughs> got to be up there with the Star Wars movies. Yeah, like, I don't even think I own it on Blu-ray because I wouldn't even know which addition to get and shout factory hasn't sent me a free copy yet so oh, yeah. well they they the stem them that's the scream factory they put out one uh but yeah the evil dead movies halloween and army of darkness are like the you know it's what it's what they call evergreens in the uh dvd yeah. distribution business yeah, and uh, I'm sure I, I, the thing is, like, they get you every time, too. Of course, I told, like, I, they always got me with Star Wars, but I said, nope, I am not buying Star Wars on Blu ray until I get my original theatrical edition. I know. Sometimes you're getting my money. You got to put your foot down sometimes. But I, I feel like when Homer Simpson, when uh, the Flame and Moe came out and he was screaming at Moe, you just lost yourself a customer, as people were just handing Moe money. Like, that's what I sound like, I think, when I'm telling people, <laughs> I ain't buying Star Wars no more. All right, thanks. Thanks, Vanderbilt. Yeah, we'll, let you, we'll talk to you later. So uh, also on the cast, we have Amanda Burse, who went on to fame with Mary with Children, yes. of course. And um, uh, Evil Ed, uh, Stephen Jeffries. I mean, he's a, you talk about some horror icon, an horror, a horror icon of, his, of sorts right there. Yeah. 
Are you guys nine seven six evil fans? I'm sure we do. Uh, I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure the people <laughs> listening are. I haven't seen that movie in forever. The most the, <laughs> the I don't remember it being very good. The funniest thing I think it's that movie. Uh, you know, and I might have told this story in either a sidecast or a, or a different episode of of uh, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. But I have a uh, friends of mine, Dave, who gets talked about a lot, and he did the Silver Bullet podcast with me last Halloween. Uh, that was a good one. That's another favorite of mine, and that movie. <laughs> that, was, that was truly a, a late-night sleepover. <laughs> uh, his brother, his twin brother Steve, is the one that wrote, wrote the theme's music to uh, that you hear in, at the beginning of every episode. But uh, they went to a video store, and they bought, I think it was that movie, 976 Evil, the video when the video store was going out of business, they bought that copy because when they were in junior high, they put tape over the tab, and in that copy, <laughs> as the credits rolled, it would like blur in the two of them like goofing around because they taped that over. That is awesome. <laughs> and so, and so for decades, whoever rented that movie, that store, when the credits started, there would be like these two fucking uh middle school kids goofing around in the middle of the credits and now they own it because they bought it when it uh when the that's store went awesome. out of business that's awesome i i, I <laughs> that's a, I, I love that i mean for anybody who doesn't know you used to have to put tape over the tab on the vhs if you wanted to if you wanted to tape over but yeah, like you just said like, your audience seems to skewer a little yeah. older so they would know that just like the audio cassettes you needed to have that tab exactly covered. And then, of course, um, I mean, kind of the heavy hitter, I guess, on the uh, the Fright Night, uh, the cast is uh, Roddy McDowell playing Peter Vincent, which, of course, the name came from uh, Peter Cushing and Vincent Price, who I know you guys are big fans of on the show. D- I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I, I like Vincent Price, but Dion's a huge Vincent Price fan. And also, I, I don't know if we, we might have passed him, uh, William Ragsdale. Oh, of course, of course. Who's, who's really I mean, the, who's knew- the lead of this movie? Who I always knew from Herman's Head. Um, I was going to say Inside Herman's Head, classic. Oh, that was that was a great show. One thing I always remember about that show was I remember when it was premiering. The t- we used to get TV Guide at the house, and TV Guide said, "You know, ah, oh, this show, this garbage. You know, who cares?" And then by the end of the season, it was part of their SOS save our shows because they're like, "Oh, we're wrong. Like this show's pretty good." And I think it lasted for three years, but uh, I watched it every night or every Sunday. It was on. Oh yeah, I remember uh, watching it too. Uh, the only thing I really remember about it in hindsight is him and that like the woman that did the voice of Lisa on The Simpsons was in it. And um, the guy who does the voice of Apu, uh, Hank Azaria, is on there, oh, too. Oh, yeah. Hank, forgot Hank Azaria was in, was in that yeah. show. That's right. And I always thought it was, as, as someone who loved Fright Night, I was like, oh, look at that. Amanda Burst is on the 8 o'clock show, and William Ragsdale <laughs> is on the 8.30 show. I wonder if they did that on purpose. And he's also in Mannequin 2. Oh, oh with, uh, Terry, with Bernie from... <laughs> you, everybody from Weekend at Bernie's ends up in a Mannequin movie. That's just how it is. <laughs> Classic, yeah, great cast. I mean, obviously, some of them, uh, you know, they're playing a little bit older. They seem a little bit older than high school, but not enough that uh, it takes you, you know out. What of always it. give what what always killed me, like as a kid watching these movies, was whenever I saw like a guy in a blazer, I was like, oh, I don't know anybody in high school that wears a blazer. Like, does that mean he's in college? Like, uh, 
That's really like wax work. I can't tell if the kids are supposed to be in high school or if they're supposed to be in college. But he's obviously <laughs> supposed to be in high school in this movie. Yeah. And especially living on the south side of Chicago, uh, people live in their bedroom until they're 35 years old around here. So it wouldn't be unheard of that he would still be upstairs doing homework <laughs> while his mom was hollering at him. Yeah, yeah. This is... Uh... I think that, you know, I think the beautiful thing about this movie is that um, that it, it's it's having fun with the genre without making fun of the genre. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's everything's a, there's a little bit of a tongue in cheek thing about it. Roddy McDowell's very funny in it. Uh, him and, Ra- and William Ragsdale are, are kind of a great little comic duo in the end of the movie. And, Absolutely. And, uh you know, and we were saying like earlier, it, it's beginning that trend of kind of being a little meta. It's a little self-aware. It's it's having the characters know about vampires because of vampire movies, and yet right, they're and, because, then, and they're living in it. Because the the movie starts off with uh, William Ragsdale, Charlie Brewster, and his girlfriend Amy, played by Amanda Burse, and uh, they're making out up in his bedroom in. Um, they never say where it's set. I always just kind of assume it's California, but it's never, especially since, you know, the, there's a TV studio uh, close by where uh, Peter Vincent is broadcasting <laughs> True. Fright Night. True. But, I mean, we have Sven Gulli here in Chicago, so it could be any Midwest town. Yeah, we have and Sven. Charlie Brewster we have, is We have Sven Gulli also. Yeah, I know he's he's. It's so weird to me that people <laughs> he's you know he's wide now because like growing up there was Sven Gulli like uh, Sven Gulli on Screaming Yellow Theater yeah. and that was uh, Bishop and then there was Son of Sven Gulli which was Rich Coe's in the eighties and then he came back when I was in high school in the nineties as just Sven Gulli and he's been going strong yeah. ever since. I was so excited when he was back, but it was funny because those first couple of movies. Uh, when he came back, it was uh, he was on WGBO, which is had turned into the U. So it was the old channel sixty six was now the U. That was their new station, and he only had access to whatever movies the old WGBO had. So it was like Angel, the movie where you know uh, high school student by day, hooker by night, <laughs> yeah. um, Chud. Um, and just kind of a couple, like Chud kind of fits in the Sven Gulli vibe, but there were a couple off the wall ones where it was just like, well, here's what you have. Like, if you can make some funny wraparounds, we'll keep this going. Because yeah, like now yeah. he shows the, now he shows the universal stuff and he, he's got some, he's got some sways. So he gets, uh, some more of the classic horror. When I interviewed Tom Holland, his, uh, his guy was Stagger Lee. And, uh, he said there was also, and he also remembered watching Vampira which is where he kind of based uh, Roddy McDowell's character of Peter Vincent. So Charlie's up watching Peter Vincent, his favorite horror movie host. I'm assuming this is probably a Friday night, you know, and he's trying to get laid, and his girlfriend's kind of like, nah, not really, not now, not now. And when she, he finally wears her down, what happens, Jay Blake? <laughs> well, he sees out the window that they're moving a coffin in next door. <laughs> <laughs> and then... The the plot thickens and uh, we're off to the races. It's uh, it, it's you know and he's not and he's not he is not interested in that girl anymore. Now yeah. I don't know. Even as a horror movie fan, like uh, like I said, I was a late bloomer on a lot of things. I don't know if I had somebody that was willing at at however old. I mean, he's at least sixteen because he's driving. Uh, I, ah, the coffin can wait till tomorrow. <laughs> 
It's true. That it's a little far fetched that part of the movie. As if the, as <laughs> as if the rest of it isn't. That that is definitely a a part of the movie that's slightly. You, you have to suspend your disbelief, like right off the bat, right there, because. Yeah. So they, he sees uh, he sees uh, Jerry Dandridge and his uh, manservant Billy Cole uh, moving this uh, coffin in next door, and uh, his girlfriend tries. His girlfriend decides she's had enough and she's running out. And we meet uh, his mom, Mrs. Brewster, who's who's really great in this movie. Uh, what's the actress's name? Dorothy Fielding. Yeah. Who um, you they can't track her down. They don't know what happened to her. Huh. Like, um, my sister actually went to a Days of the Dead convention, and she got her Fright Night LP signed by all the living members of the yeah. cast. And uh, she, uh, I was watching, I think it was maybe on the audio commentary for the Twilight Time Blu-ray that I have. Like, they just can't track her down, and she's never, you know, showed up at any of the conventions saying, hey, you know, I was in this movie, too. <laughs> Which is kind of funny, because I think she's very funny as the role of... Uh, I'm guessing. I'm guessing divorced. I don't think I. The, Charlie Brewster's dad is never mentioned, but I'm just guessing divorced because she seems like she's on the prowl because she was very disappointed that to find out that the new guy next door has an interior decorator, so she <laughs> assumes he must be homosexual. Yeah, yeah. I hear that the uh, you know like this gets brought up a lot here on the show, but the the uh, like the movie novelizations. I think uh, there's a lot. John of- Skip, Jonathan Skip wrote the Fright Night one. And I hear that there is like a mention that like the dad skipped town when he was little or something like that. I've never, I don't have that one. I haven't read that one. I can't, that one's hard to find. I, it was on eBay a couple months ago and I, I met, I was watching it and I meant to place a bid and then, you know, it got away from me and it was affordable too, which I, I was surprised. Like it was only like 10 bucks, which I think that one generally goes, has a pretty hefty price tag attached to it because yeah, it's hard yeah. to find. Yeah. I know you love the movie novelizations. I know you do. <laughs> I do have a... Jo- the guy who wrote it, actually, Jonathan Skip, he was at the... Uh, when I saw the movie, when I saw the screening of Friday Night at the Bruce Campbell Horror Film Fest, he was there, and he screened a short film that was supposed to be a pilot for a series called Clown Town that featured uh, Tom Holland as in it, back to his acting roots uh, before the Spider-Man thing broke <laughs> as... Yeah, where he played where he played a clown in the movie, and it was uh, it was funny. It was it was it was silly. It was funny, and uh, you know, Jonathan Skip he he actually had a hand in writing uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Five: The Dream Child, which I just found out because I was watching him on you know AMC Fear Fest. And I was like, oh, I recognize that name. Yeah. And he was a you know Fangoria writer. He was part of that like <clears throat> Masters of Horror gang. I think that hung out in L.A. in the '80s, like with Tommy McLaughlin and Wes Craven and. John Carpenter never really wanted. He was always there, but he'd leave early. Like he was, eh, I don't want to hang out with these jagos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's no there's no mention of the dad in the movie, and you know, his, Charlie's like, hey, you, know, you hear about that new neighbor, and you know, she's disappointed that he he's, he might not be interested in Mrs. Brewster, and um, then the plot thickens even more. I mean, it's a it's a brilliant plot device. It's something that would become a, a something that. You know, he would return to in, in Child's Play, which is this idea of that nobody believes. You know, that the story... And why, and why would anybody? The, the story's so outlandish ridiculous. that it would, it would be impossible for anybody to leave. And, you know, people say the boy that cry wolf thing, but for me, it's much more like a horror... Both of these movies are much more like the horror version of that Looney Tunes cartoon with the frog that sings and dances. 
oh man, that's a. I'm like, oh, where's he going with this? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, because nobody, nobody believes it when you see the. And the every frog, time, right? And every time he has, he finds this frog, like in the, you know, buried under a building. You know, in the foundation, in a box, yeah, and it sings and dances and uh, has the top hat and everything. But then every time he tries to get anybody to take a look at it, it's just a frog. But every time, because <laughs> then, um, so then he's at school the next day, Charlie Brewster, and he seems to almost have forgotten about it. But and we meet his buddy Evil Ed, played by Stephen Jeffries. Um, where I, th- I believe this is the point where Charlie was very upset that he uh, failed the pop quiz. And Stephen Jeffries explains to him that's the point of a pop quiz to surprise you. Yeah, he's like, why does he? How could he give us a pop quiz? <laughs> he's like, well, that's kind of the point. <laughs> and um, he comes home, and Jerry Dandridge, our vampire, is in the house because well, his mother invited him. Well, and what's he drinking? A Bloody Mary. <laughs> Well, there is this notion. I think it's it's the the idea is presented that if there's a werewolf, I mean, if there's a vampire, don't invite them into the house. I think that's always been, that's always been a thing. Do not invite. Yeah, them. but that's brought they up. They can't in the, come into the house unless they're invited. But it's brought up in the movie before that scene because then it's like, oh fuck, he wasn't going to invite him. Make sure he's not invited in the house. And then we see that he's already been invited by the mother. Yeah. One of the things I love about this movie is the exterior, like back lot. <laughs> Look oh, of the film. They don't even try to like, like it, it. 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 I wonder what other movies it's been in. I'm sure it's been in every movie from Columbia or any other studio. Yeah, because it's got kind of a familiar look to it. Well, first I was looking at it because you see, I think they're trying to play it off like a like a schoolhouse, but I think it's there's like a church kind of like at the end of the yeah. block. And if, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I yeah. was always like looked at. I was looking at it. and I was like, is this? Because at the at the Warner Brothers back lot, there's a church, and it's part of this. It's part of like the town uh, square, and that, they use that town square in that church in Monster Squad. Uh, it's the church in Lost Boys when they go to get Holy Water. It's that church. So I'm looking at him like, is it that church? But it doesn't look like a town square. It, lo- it does look like a full block, and I don't think they would have went through all the trouble to like, you know, fill in to the, dress it up. Yeah, yeah, to fill in like the across the street of the house. So I'm like, I'm wondering where this is. I think it, and I think it's, it ends up being the Disney lot. Back when they had a back lot, I don't think they have a back lot anymore. But the, the, the greatest thing, and it's one of those like tongue in cheek things where they're saying like they're having fun with this genre, is that you know it's pretty much a pretty standard suburban town. I love that it has this back lot feel. But then right next door is like this really old, like creepy looking house that's like gigantic <laughs> with like stained glass windows and it's like it's Wow, like, never noticed that before. Who lived who lived there before Jerry Dandridge moved in? Like of course a vampire would like dig that house, but who was the one that was living in the house uh before? And it looked like it, they hadn't been there in a while because there's all sorts of cobwebs and shit all over the house. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's totally it's like the Munsters house, like in the middle of the <laughs> I think the Munsters lived there before Jerry Dandridge moved in. Yeah. They, and they, yeah, then they moved out, Jerry Dandridge moved in, and then whoever I mean, that's a uh, without getting ahead of ourselves, like at the end of the movie, like, you know, when they break out all the windows and Jerry Dandridge is dead, I always wonder like, how did anybody explain any of this shit to the police or the fire department? <laughs> well, that's the beauty of movies. It's like, you know, we like, just Movie ends. You don't, don't have to worry, worry about, about it. You don't have to worry about that yeah. stuff. It'll get worked so, out. 
so Jerry Dandridge is at the house, and he he tells Charlie that uh, he'll come over whenever he wants. You know, back to the whole being invited thing. Yeah. yeah. And, now that I've been invited uh, over, and, and he's I'll come so ch- over whenever. In a very with threatening your mother's way. permission, of with, with your mother's permission, of course. Yeah. yeah. And he's so he's just so very charming. Well, that this, long yeah. leather coat and that red scarf. I mean, who who else would dress like that other than a vampire? Well, at this right? point, at this point in the movie, you know, uh, Charlie's kind of on to him, has suspicions, and Jerry knows that Charlie knows. So it's very that it's very threat. It's a threat, and a, and a, it, that line it it becomes it's, it's very it's very subtle. Yes, yes, because I think at this point he'd already it, had Charlie already seen. Uh, Jerry Dandridge with uh, the uh, the prostitute that he brought over. Oh yeah, well there was a prostitute that was outside, and then the blonde. She, yeah, and then she ends up being dead like the next day on the news. Yeah, because he, that's when Charlie gets that's when Charlie gets the uh, the burger to the face, and we hear that the iconic line for the first time: "Oh, you're so cool, Brewster." <laughs> yeah, uh, and then he sees him again through the window. And we see those long fingernails with yeah. uh, I really liked the uh, the girl that he had in there on that second one that redhead one that was a favorite of mine as a young man and well, my tastes haven't changed those, that much as I've gotten are, older and those are the two boobs that uh, were, those are the two aforementioned <laughs> calling <boobs>. back <laughs> <laughs> two boobs in night in 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 fright night because because uh, uh, Charlie Brewster's hanging out up there watching the house like you know. Like Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window. Well, totally. Even the shot, the- even like the sh- you know, there's there's shots where he's like sitting there with like the blanket over his legs with the binoculars. I mean, even it's like a total homage, even like to the shot to the shot to a T of Rear Window. So uh, after that, uh, Jerry Dandridge decides to pay Charlie Brewster a visit, um, and he comes in through the mother's bedroom. Which I love, and I'm sure you noticed this too. There's a great, just it's such a throwaway shot too, where Jerry walks through the bedroom and walks past the mirror in his mom's room, and he has no ref- no reflection. Yeah. And um, I, I talked to Tom Holland about that when I interviewed him for the AV Club, and I was like, you know what? I was like, hey, you know what? That's such a great shot, and it's you know such a throwaway. You know, was that intentional? And he, even he was like, you know, in hindsight, I probably should have cut a little closer. But, you know, what am I going to do? It's three years old. You know, so, I mean, every director still looks back at his stuff and is like, ah, I should have done that better. I, he probably can't even sit and watch Fright Night anymore without picking <laughs> apart all of the mistakes that yeah. he made. Yeah. Fred Decker's like that, too. Like, he he can barely watch Night of the Creeps because, you know, it being his first movie, he just says he all he does is see... The mistakes that he made. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, there's also the, in that scene, that bedroom scene with the mother when she's asleep and he's in there. There's also like, there's a number of continuity issues, and one of which is there's a shot of him when he's like walking, and it's and and it's supposed to be her room, but it's actually Charlie's room because we see that like a different take of that shot lately, like in a couple okay. of minutes afterwards. <laughs> So there's your editor brain coming in right there. Yeah, yeah, because I'm watching it. I'm like, how weird that his mom has like a poster of like a Corvette <laughs> on the <laughs> on the wall. 
And then we see the wide shot, and it's not there. But then later, when we're in Charlie's room, we see that the basically the same shot, a different take, slightly the framing slightly different, but it's clearly just a different take of that same shot. We're like, okay, there's the poster. This is it's actually just it, a shot from Charlie's room that they just re- kind of used, recycled. They felt like they needed one other shot uh, for that other and, um, scene. Yeah, let's, and I want to talk about Charlie's room for a minute because I always think it's funny that. Apparently, every teenage boy in the 80s had the same room in movies. Like, I don't know. Did yours look like that growing up? Like, I, well, of course, you know, by the time I was a teenager, it would have been the 90s. And I, I was living in my parents' basement at that point. But it's always, it's always, you know, a couple girls in bikinis and a Corvette. Yeah, like, yeah. Cars, a beer, a neon beer sign. <laughs> I think his might be Coors, if I'm not mistaken. I think I'm, I'm, I'm about 100% sure that it's Coors. Because some car posters. Well, car posters were a big deal. I mean, I would imagine in Chicago you still had the thing where you would get, like, the catalog in school. And you would... The book fair. Yeah, or, or the book fair. But you would sometimes... That was, that was where... That's where we always... You'd pick everything out from the catalog, and there was always car posters. And I was happy to find out someone at work was telling me that the book fair was going on. I was like... I'm glad that there's still a book fair at grade school. That's that's good. Well, there's the thing around the holidays where they give you like a catalog and you and basically you're supposed to go get people to buy chocolates and stuff. But oh yeah, yeah. Or yeah. like really, your parents just take it to work and get people to buy stuff. <laughs> and then when you if you yes. if you end up selling like X amount of dollars worth of stuff, you get something from the catalog. And I remember one year, like the prize was if you sold X amount of dollars of candy and junk the the prize was the six foot wide poster of a black lamborghini <laughs> sitting on a checkered black and white checkered floor with like a oh. purple background <laughs> does it get more Man. 80s than that <laughs> the eight that, it, shit only only if the cars are playing in the background on on the poster like it, like that's about as 80s as you get right there. Well, yeah, I, it's so funny because car posters were such a big... I don't even know. I mean, I was never a gearhead, so like I wouldn't have been able to tell a Lamborghini from a Porsche yeah, or anything. Yeah. Um, I got into it later, probably you know, being able to pick out different cars. But I don't even know if kids are have posters of cars hanging up in there. Probably the cars in the Fast and the Furious, I assume. I don't know. So they got like a Nissan. Like a, <laughs> Nissan, a picture of a Nissan Ultima. <laughs> like a big spoiler on the back. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, Jerry Dandridge pays Charlie a visit in his room, fucks up his pachinko machine, um, and Charlie stabs him in the hand. And we finally get to see like uh, some terrific uh, make, uh, makeup effects, practical makeup effects from Richard Edlund and the gang, who had uh, previously done Ghostbusters for Columbia the year before. Yeah, the makeup effects are great in this movie. And you can, I mean, they say the movie was made for about $9.5 million. And you can tell that most of that budget went to the, the special effects because they're really great. And it's so, they're so great that at the end of the movie, they end up spending so much time on them. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> and and as like a, as a nostalgic film fan and a horror movie fan and nostalgic for that time of you know that era of special effects and horror movies and stuff like the fact that you know at the end with the the, the de-transformation of like the wolf into uh in, into the evil ed character right yeah it's it takes forever but i'm just like i'm i love every second of it when i watch it well, now it it's great that you mentioned that because i was uh before before you know 
when I was preparing for the sleepover, you know, I was watching my old VHS tape, uh, my Twilight Time VHS tape of uh, of Fright Night, and there's a well, there was a um, I there was some production notes from a what is it from uh, an April 1985 preview screening from a, a, an exec named John Bruno, and uh, everything uh, everything you were talking about the wolf transformation, yeah, yeah. like the audience response, everything is too long, like. Charlie's confrontation with Jerry, too long. Wolf in hallway, too long. Evil and Billy's deaths, too long. And then right at the end, after that, it's like the bat, just fine. Everybody <laughs> loves the bat. Yeah, but there's something about that. Just and, kind of revel in the beauty of physical effects there. And they really do take their time on that one. That's a really great transformation too. I mean, not as good as American Werewolf in London. I know some people prefer the Howling. I'm an American Werewolf guy, um, but yeah. Terrific special effect. Well, I mean, they they did. Um, I mean, it's the same team that did Ghostbusters, and I believe did Poltergeist as well. And I think probably most of those bigger, like middle middle budget horror movies yeah, from yeah. the '80s. Well, a lot of those guys, like, is, a lot of those guys like Steve Johnson. You know, he had worked for Rick Baker. He was on that team, and he had worked for Rick Baker, and he had worked with Rob Boutine. Um, and so, you know. That's the that's the kind of the beautiful thing when you when you start looking into who worked on these kinds of movies is that you start to see that these guys that are all, you know, amazingly talented in their own right are working behind guys like Richard Edlin on this movie or Rick Baker on that movie. And, and you start to see like it's a very, uh, you know, in a way like a c- incestuous kind of like field then. Oh, sure. Like. You could everybody knew. It seems like I mean, when you look back now, it's funny to think that everybody kind of knew each other that was working on all these movies. And you know, Dick Smith was always, of course, uh, notorious. The for, Godfather, yeah, yeah, but notorious for being helpful. And then you know, like people would write him letters or call him and say, "How do you do this?" And some people in the in the makeup business had had trade secret secrets. But Dick Smith was always he would go into his file, figure out how he did it, and and just like lend out those files or copy those files for everybody because it was about expanding the uh you know cinema the art of of makeup it wasn't about like i'm now that i know how to do it i'm not going to ever show anybody how to do it and i think a lot of he put out that book he put out that book that you can't get for less than like two three hundred dollars i think like an original printing of and they haven't reprinted it in years the uh, dick smith monster makeup book yeah yeah and so, do you have that? I bet you. I bet you, you have. It. I don't have it. You know, Dion might have that one though. I know <laughs> there's a chance Dion has it. I don't have it. Um, I wish I did. Uh, I'm surprised I never ended up with that one because I was I lo- I dug that stuff when I was a kid. When I would go to the library, we I would take us to the library. You know, we you know we'd take out books, and I was always taking out horror books. And if they had you know books on makeup, like those are great. And I always tried to do it, and always kind of. Either because I was doing it slipshod or not following directions or whatever, it never came out yeah, yeah. exactly like how I wanted it to do. Well, I think a lot of people from our generation kind of fell in love with movies and wanted to make movies because in the eighties we started to have all these things with the making ofs, and we get to see all these special effects things, and it just looked awesome. And you get to see like the magic of cinema and the magic of makeup. And so I think a lot of people, I think it's, I think I bet you a lot of people that are really in love with movies that are around our age kind of fell in love with them because of that kind of stuff. I used to love like when, uh, you know, when the big budget movie was coming out, like whatever the the summer movie was, like all the, uh, the marketing and press stuff that was coming out, the commercials and the making of special that would be on HBO or some night and I would tape it and I would just watch it. 
and like the Entertainment Tonight special that would have you know the cast of the Shadow on. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Watch these interviews with them and like the making of specials. Like, and that's something. I mean, I don't like the sound. Like, I, I love new movies. I still love going to see new movies. I, I try to go to the movies as much as I can. I go try to go to the film festivals as much as I can. But like. Something you'll never get with uh, CGI, and I hate sounding like I'm whining about CGI not being as good as practical effects, is you don't get that magic from the making of a special. Like, it was more interesting when you were watching, you know, six guys operate Job of the Hut instead of. <laughs> totally. Yeah, and I, with I, a, I with the, little, the, per, the little person in the tail sitting inside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now it's like, well, I click right here, and um, yeah, and we didn't even need to go outside to shoot this. We shot this all on a. We we shot this all on a stage. We this, nobody was even on set. None of the actors were there. We just put everybody in in post. I'm like, eh, that's no fun to watch. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, not, it's definitely not as much magic going on there. Well, I would say you know you were talking about how I mean, and obviously we're a lot he- we're pretty far ahead of ourselves, but you know you're talking about how you know the American of London is the big wolf transformation and howling, but I would say the one in this movie is pretty great. And just like the design of it, like that mid period where it's just like the body with the wolf head is like stunning. And it's so interesting to look at. And it's oddly affecting too, because while at that point in the film, evil Ed is now a minion of Derry Jandridge and a villain, you kind of feel bad for this kid who, you know, was kind of this dorky horror movie fan. Who's dead now? And you can see it on Peter Vincent's face that he's kind of upset that he had to kill him. But you know, <laughs> what else are you going to do when you're being attacked by a wolf? <laughs> it's true. I mean, there's not really there's not too many options it, there. They didn't have a lot of options there. I just say in terms of the plot. I mean, um, so we get uh, you know, in a nutshell, we have uh, the Charlie Brewster character as we discussed. He knows that there's a vampire next door. Nobody believes him. He even at some point tries to get a police to come out. To check oh, it that's out. a great scene with the great um, God. Well, I, I wrote the actor's name now, Art Evans, yeah. who a lot of people recognize from Die Hard Two is his big one. But he's a character actor who has been around forever. Yeah, he's he's great. He's only got that really that one scene to my recollection. Uh, oh, that, that's the only time he shows up, and it's you know anybody who's seen the movie knows how funny it is when you know I think there's something going on here. I think they're killing these prostitutes, <laughs> and you're like, take him into the basement. And I love that little moment where um, the detective's like, uh, well, what's in the basement? And Billy Cole, who it was totally in on it, you know, um, Jerry Dandridge's manservant. And he's like, yeah, Charlie, what's in the basement? Because he knows what he's going to say. He's going to say there's a coffin with a vampire in it. Yeah. And that's exactly what Charlie Brewster says. And the detective's like, what the hell am I doing here? Why am I hanging out with you clowns? God, wasted my time over here. Yeah, the film does a great job of like having, you know, straddling that line of like the ridiculous and the realistic. And like the scene like that is is kind of a perfect example. Like we know the the, the fantastic nature of the movie, that Charlie's telling the truth, but we also understand as the audience like this it's absolutely ridiculous <laughs> that you would try to get a police officer to go down for that being the reasoning. And so you you kind of have both you have have one foot in each aspect of it. You can see like the realistic aspect of it from like the the detective's point of view or whoever he tries to convince. But at the same time, uh, Tom Holland does a great job of kind of suspending our disbelief enough and letting us go on that adventure with him that we like, we don't really, well, I really find myself what I find myself doing in, in something in this movie and other, but I put myself in a situation and it's like, 
God, nobody would believe and I just nobody would believe me and nobody should believe you because a vampire living next door is absolutely ridiculous. Well, I mean that even his friends, his girlfriend and his his best friend, they don't believe him and so they think that it's, you know that he's basically kind of suffering from a psychotic break and they go to <laughs> they go they go to uh <laughs> When they go, when they go to his house, and he's got all the, uh, he's got the windows boarded shut, and he's got all the, all the garlic all over the place, and uh, he's over there carving steaks, talking about how he's going to go over there and kill Jerry Dandridge himself. Yeah, and I was, I want to talk about the relationship between Charlie Brewster and Evil Ed because it seems kind of oddly tenuous because they seem like they're best friends, but it also seems like Charlie and him don't like each other very yeah, much. Yeah, it is an interesting relationship because you do get the sense of like, why are they friends? Because you're right, you do get a sense that they don't really like each other, but for some reason, maybe they're in all the same classes together. <laughs> I've I've made friends that way. It's like, oh, like, hey, I'm 36. I make friends at work, and it's like, well, I probably wouldn't hang out with the outside, but like, we're stuck here for 40 hours a week. I get you like music, like, <laughs> and obviously they both like horror movies, which I always, I mean, I mean, this is totally like Monday morning, morning Monday morning quarterbacking. When you've seen a movie too many times, where even though you love a movie, you can pick things apart, like. Charlie Brewster obviously knows this thing about two about vampires. Why does he have to go to Evil Ed for advice? Yeah, I totally agree. That's one point where you know you always hear the pitch being a horror fan has a track has you know a vampire moving next door, and it's like, well, you know, and obviously he likes the Peter Vince, Vincent show, but like if he is such a horror fan, why does he need to go to Evil Ed's place to find out how to kill a vampire? <laughs> I mean, it was probably one of those, like, when uh, Tom Holland was writing the script, he's like, well, you know what, everybody's going to forget about it by this point, so let's just have this in here. Yeah, yeah. So they go over to his house, they think, uh, Evil Ed and uh, Amy think uh, Charlie's having a mental breakdown. Charlie's mother is nowhere to be found when any of this is going on. Like, I think my mom, I mean, we had a small Chicago house. My mom would know if I had that much garlic in the house because I don't cook now and I certainly didn't cook when I was 17 uh, you know, and uh, when I was a teenager I wouldn't even know where to go get all that stuff <laughs> I would have probably had to ask her and especially in the 80s he didn't have the internet yeah well that's kind of the other beauty of uh, one of the other beautiful things about 80s movies I mean I'm sure it's that way in other movies but in movies in general that like there's a there's a convenience where like the parents just kind of disappear at some point <laughs> Yeah, because that was not how my neighborhood, I mean, my parents were always around. Like, my dad worked, but my mom was home. My mom didn't start working again until I was a teenager. So, like, when I watched those movies, like, uh, like even, like, in It Follows, which was a favorite of mine from a couple of years ago, like, yeah, it kind of yeah. had that 80s thing where the, the parents aren't really there. Or, like, in the Elm Street movies, the parents are always, <laughs> the parents are always derelicts in the... In the Elm Street movies, like, my upbringing was pretty good. I didn't know parents like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're talking about bedrooms. One of my favorite bedrooms in film history is Johnny Depp's bedroom in the first night on Elm Street. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. Like, I kind of wish uh, my bedroom looked like that with, like, a TV on the, like, sitting on the bed and watching it with oh. headphones on. Oh, yeah. And, you know, a big record player, like, you know. And um, I once read that, because I was, like, when I was watching it, by the time I was watching Nightmare on Elm Street when I was 14, I'd seen it when I was a kid. Let's say when I'm 
12, 13, 14, when I'm buying the movies on VHS, I was like, why is he still listening to records? Like, I always thought that was a 70s thing. Yeah. I was like, why wouldn't he be listening to a tape by then? But then I once read that Nightmare on Elm Street's supposed to take place in 1978. I don't know if there's any truth to that. Huh. And I don't know if that's, that's probably not the reason they decorated the, the room like that. But I always thought that was kind of this weird thing. Um, I don't know how true it is either. It could have been one of those <laughs> things I made up, too. Urban, an urban legend. Yeah. Yeah, don't quote <laughs> me on that. So they um, they find out that uh, Charlie had already gone to Peter Vincent to help, try and get Peter Vincent to help him kill Jerry Dandridge. And Amy and uh, Evil Ed decide to go to Peter Vincent to try and help prove Charlie wrong. Yeah. So they, they arrange to all go over to Jerry Dandridge's house yeah. one night. And you know they only can go after night. At night, I mean, don't go and uh, don't kill the vampire during the day. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, get the, the the only really important plot point of that, other than the fact that uh, they're basically just using Peter Vincent to like, uh, you know, to kind of just play into kind of the delusion and help 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 break him of that delusion. But the other right. plot point, uh, important plot point, is that. Uh, Peter Vincent has been fired from late night host. Yes. Because uh, you know, the young horror fans don't like that kind of stuff anymore. They they only care about some some maniac in a ski mask hacking up young virgins. And uh and the only reason why Peter Vincent ends up going along with this, you know, kind of little game is because he's hard up for money. And it, there's a certain sadness in that scene. Like and Roddy McDowell plays it so well. That he is just kind of a, a loser old actor who his career never took off. He just did all these schlocky horror movies, kind of waiting for a big break. Probably was trained in Shakespeare. Probably was a pretty good actor. And just nothing took. And then now he's in some possibly podunk town hosting a local horror show. Well, I think it's... Unfor- take- unfortunately, I think it's the plight of a lot of actors. <laughs> yeah. You know, even... Uh- you know, like Stephen Jeffries has talked about how, uh, you know, he was like fresh out of college. He went to, you know, he was on a Broadway, he did a Broadway show and then he got frightened. I mean, these, a lot of these, they go into, they come out of the, like the theater and then they try to make a buck during movies. And then, you know, they do, they get caught in, in a niche and it's unfortunately what happens. I mean, Vincent Price is, is a perfect example. And, and, in, and in many ways, the Peter Vincent characters kind of, Based on you know uh, Tom Holland's, I read that the I read that Peter Vincent was actually written for Vincent Price, but he didn't want to do it because he felt he was typecast in horror movies at that point and was trying to do other things. Although I guess he met Roddy McDowell later in life and complimented his performance and said it was a very good movie and a very good job. Yeah, so I mean it's it's unfortunately though. I mean, I look all of them. I mean, Bella Lugosi. I mean. <laughs> Boris, he, yeah, Boris mean, Karloff it, it is a was, perfect example as well. These guys that, you know, were, you know, they didn't set out to be horror icons, but then once they are, that's kind of what they are for the rest of their lives, unfortunately. And it's interesting to see how things have changed in uh, pop culture, film, television, that, you know, it used to be, you know, like you said, being typecast as a horror icon or being typecast as a TV actor. Like, it seems like these days, everybody's real smart about it and everybody can do everything. Like... Yeah, it does seem like I mean, those there's people. There's people that still only do horror movies, but I mean, it, 
big, like uh, somebody like Patrick. Uh, who am I thinking of from the Conjuring movies? Uh, Patrick Wilson. Like he does genre stuff, but then he'll go do dramas and he'll do everything else. Um, yeah, it does. There's, kind of, there's a little more room to move it, than yeah, there was it, back then. It, it does seems. kind of seem like those walls don't exist as much anymore, especially for the crossover between television and film. So they 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 wrangle they wrangle Peter Vincent with a with Amy's savings bond for like I don't know like five, maybe five hundred dollars. Yeah, I think it's five hundred. Not even that bucks. much. Yeah, yeah. And they all go over to Jerry Dandridge's house, but it's kind of funny that when they when they they when they uh, arrange for it, like. Uh, Evil Ed's talking to Jerry Dandridge about it, and uh, all the kind of rules that Jerry Dandridge implies, like because he's a vampire, but he comes up with ways around it, like you know, like you can't have any crosses because he's a born again Christian, yeah. And and him and him and his manservant are just chuckling at themselves. They're really tickled with themselves for all this stuff. Yeah, and uh, they, so they go over to the house, and we find out there that Amy resembles Jerry Dandridge's lover from ages ago, which is something I think that I picked up on when I was watching it when I was in high school, that more so than any of the other like movies from that vampire boom that you talked about in the 80s, was that this one is basically a... I mean, it's for all the rear windowness of it, it is a... It takes the core of the Dracula myth and moves it to the 80s. Yeah. I think a lot of people forget about that, that the uh, Dracula was originally about, you know, like, or if you, I mean, I'm most familiar probably with the Francis Ford Coppola one, you know, crossing oceans of time for a lover. And uh, I, I really liked that. It was something that really spoke to me about Fright Night. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's an aspect that I don't, I mean, that's obviously a very huge, and like a huge plot point in the Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. But I'm not sure that that's like really to my recollection. I don't recall that really being a, you know, a plot point in other versions. Maybe the uh, Frank Langella one from the '79, which I don't know that well. <laughs> yeah, no, no, and I and I, I haven't read the book since I was in sixth grade, but I'm guessing that's where it came from. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, that could, you know, that would be an interesting thing. I, you know, I, I should have uh, researched that a little bit because I don't, I don't know that that's, you know, aside from Fright Night and that. And the the Coppola Dracula, I, I mean, I don't know too many off the top of my head that use that device. I mean, and it's also in a weird way because we talk about the Hitchcock stuff, and it is a slight kind of like Vertigo homage too. Yeah, and when I spoke to Tom Holland about the uh, about. Uh, why was that an intentional nod to Dracula? He said a little bit, but it was more so to give the Chris Sarandon character, the Jerry Dandridge character, a little sympathy. Like uh, he didn't want him to just be, you know, an evil vampire. He wanted to give him some sort of human, like uh, sentiment to the character. Yeah, well, you know, that's it's an interesting thing uh, that movie in terms of when you start to research it a little bit, you find out that some of the interesting things about the movie is that one, there was a crap load of rehearsal, which doesn't get done on, uh, you know, movies a lot. They're, no, they're definitely not any of the movies I've worked on. <laughs> yes. They, most they, people haven't even read the script. Apparently they rehearsed for like two weeks or something. And by the end, they really could run the whole thing. Like it was a play. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that Tom Holland comes from, has an acting background and he was very, uh, adamant about working out, 
you know, backstories for the characters and letting the actors bring things to it. And so, um, you know, Chris Sarandon, he brought things, I think the painting that we're talking about, I think that was to my, from what I researched is a little bit of the two of them kind of coming up with that idea together to give a little bit of a a human quality. The apple thing is Chris Sarandon. (laughs) One of what that's one of me and my sister's favorite things, and that was that was Chris Randon saying he'd be like a bat, like a fruit bat, so he would be eating fruit to clean his fangs. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is such an itch, you know. The, when you get into like the, you know, a lot of people can be jaded and be like the actor methody thing is is kind of horseshit. But I always find them that those kinds of choices to be really interesting because it brings like a whole other. It brings depth to a character that might not already be there. And I think what really works about the Chris Sarandon, like vampire character in this is that there is like this kind of backstory. And there's like even just like the one line he says to Charlie, like there's a point when he's in the house with Charlie and he's just like, look, you could leave this alone. You know, like you could ignore this. And we can both go on with our business. And he basically says to me, he, he, the line is something like, like, you have a choice, which is something I never he had. He gives him the choice that I didn't have. Yeah. yeah he yeah. says that when he's up in the, up in the bedroom when he, before he stabs him, in the, uh, stabs him in the hand with the pencil. Another uh, terrific practical effect that you know, it took a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of work to do for like what seems like a throwaway shot. And yeah, that's a, he's not while he is the villain of the piece, like, and yes, he is, you know, sucking down on prostitutes and all that. He doesn't, he doesn't want to fight Charlie. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like that. He doesn't one, want to get involved. That one line of dialogue, you know, accomplishes so much for the viewer in terms of, you know, feeling something for him, understanding him a little bit, like giving some depth to a character so that, you know, you feel like it's a real there is, it's a real character. It's a real person, not just someone written. Just one little piece of dialogue can change like the entire momentum of, and and all of a sudden you're like, huh? It's 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 like a heavy line. <laughs> and, and you know that's what you do when you get like talented actors in your what could just be like a pot boiler horror film. Because I mean, I was pro- it probably was in Holland's script, but like you said, like how many how much background. Uh, Chris Randon gave to Jerry Danders his own head can can elevate a character. Yeah. And it's something, uh, you know, I, I don't think we'll get into it too much at the end here, but um, this is an example of a remake that I, the, the 2011 remake is actually a movie that I, a remake that I like a lot, but it's something that's totally missing from that movie. Like the Colin Farrell uh, vampire in that. And it's even said in that movie, he's a shark. He's just a predator. And I feel like that's, it's a nuance that's totally missing from that. And even though I like that movie and I think, uh, you know, I, I like the cast of that movie and I think a lot of things are fun and work about that movie. That's definitely something that I feel like that movie could have used, which the, the original yeah. has, which is, you know, this feeling something, you know, he he's just not this like predator without any kind of feelings. You know, you understand that there is some kind of history. We never know how old Chris he was Ryan a is. human before he was a vampire. Yeah, yeah, is what they're is what they're letting you know. Like he wasn't always like this. And as the plot moves forward, you know, this is where I guess you know. So we have this meeting, and and the other fo- like funny thing about that scene is that we discover that uh, 
that Jerry Dandridge is a fan of Peter Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> he finds his movies very amusing. <laughs> and uh, so we get a little bit more of that meta thing. And, um, and then we discover at the end of that scene through, through the mirror that... In a, a, a great reveal because there's no mirrors in the house. And uh, Peter Vincent takes a cigarette, his cigarette case out that has a mirror and notices that there's no reflection and drops his uh drops his cigarette case and uh, leaves a little piece of the mirror behind and at this point he you can see it on his face that he finally buys the story and realizes that Jerry Dandridge is in fact a vampire. Yeah. And because that little piece is left behind Jerry knows that you know. And he knows that they know <laughs> that they know everybody that everybody knows a that everybody else knows. I mean, maybe, yeah. and moving forward in the in the in the plot, I mean, some of just the the set pieces, like we said, that um, the evil Ed character he ends up getting turned. But uh, there's this whole scene in a in kind of like a di- in a in a discotheque, essentially, because they're walking home after the meeting, and they end up in a discotheque because it's the '80s, and <laughs> I. It's funny when I think about it, like where where neighborhood were they? Like that they how far away does Amy live where they have to walk through downtown Los Angeles <laughs> from from Jerry Dandridge's uh you know gothic mansion that he lives on on the back lot. Yeah. Well you know what's funny And there's nothing else going on in the downtown area except no, no. for that discotheque. It's dead, it's dead. Because everybody's at the discotheque. Nobody's hanging out outside. <laughs> Including the uh, biker from Friday the thirteenth part three, who's now working as a bouncer. <laughs> And the thing, you know, it's it's interesting because that I mean, it might just be because of the mid '80s discotheque stuff, but uh, it, it's a scene that reminds me a lot of Terminator, and the fact that Brad Fadell or, or I don't know how to pronounce his last name scored both of those movies. It's like one of those weird little, uh, you know, uh, degrees of it separation. De- it, it definitely, I don't know the name of the disco in. Um in Fright Night, but it definitely has a tech noir kind of vibe. <laughs> not quite as dark, it. but just like... Uh, no, not as smoky. Yeah, not quite as smoky. A little more yuppie, a little more yuppie. A little bigger, it looks like to me. It's a little bit... Oh, yeah, they got a couple floors there, <laughs> for sure. I mean, for for the downtown Midwest town, wherever uh, wherever Charlie lives, like it, was, it must have been the spot. Like you said, that's why downtown was so dead. That's why you know everybody was cruising around in them alleys uh, without anybody bothering them. Because they were all at the discotheque, and you get a nice, um, you get a nice run of three songs there. You get Sparks doing Armies of the Night, and you get um, the favorite song on the soundtrack for both David Shackler and Tom Holland, uh, "Give It Up" by uh, Evelyn Champagne King. Like that was one of the that was the, when I interviewed both of them. Like that was the song that really stuck out for them yeah. as a favorite, and um, you kind of get like a nice sweep of songs. Right there. An interesting thing. I mean, one of my favorite things about the movie was the soundtrack, and that's why it was. That's why I was so gung ho to interview Tom Holland, and ended up interviewing uh, David Shackler. Yeah. And he and I went, you know, song by song through the soundtrack. And one of the things that really interested me about it, and you'll probably dig this too, as a <clears throat> having written a movie about horror movie scores, was that all the music except for the April Wine song was written specifically for the movie. Mm. Like the bands all read the script and contributed a song because somebody knew somebody and got a demo to them. Like Devo's on the soundtrack because they, one of the producers was friends with, with David Byrne and David Byrne from Talking Heads is like, no, Devo's better for this. Yeah. yeah. And uh, like the, the, 
and all these songs were written specifically for needle drops where Tom Holland and Dave Chackler figured out where they wanted music to play and they wanted the songs to kind of be written to kind of explain what was going on in the plot just a little bit just nothing it's not a rock opera or <laughs> yeah, yeah. like that but uh they wanted it to fit they wanted a, a soundtrack to go along with the movie yeah, I mean, they said like nowadays. I mean, I don't know when the last time like I don't even know if people write original songs for movies now because most of the stuff is just based in nostalgia. Like, I don't even know if you'd have a soundtrack of original artists for a movie, much less a low budget horror movie. Yeah, it's a uh, the soundtrack stuff is you know every once in a while you'll get somebody like uh, I believe Pineapple Express. Huey Lewis wrote a song for that movie. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like, and it was nice. It fitted, but like, it was definitely just one song. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a whole soundtrack. <laughs> and they got all these, you know, kind of. I mean, the the thing that always struck me about it, and one of the things I really liked about Fright Night is Fright Night has, you know, a real kind of like the movie itself is very pop. Yeah, I think has real pop sensibility, and so does the soundtrack. And there was a conscious decision by Dave Chackler to like you know they wanted to cross over they thought the movie could reach a wide audience they thought the soundtrack could reach an even wider audience through top 40 radio which is why you have jay giles band and that's not even peter wolf singing that's the keyboardist on that one yeah um one of the stories i did want to get into right here as long as we're talking about the music is the one song on here bopping tonight by the fabulous fontaines was the reason i wanted to talk to these guys because i couldn't find anything out about this band yeah they kind of sound like a rockabilly like a new wave rockabilly band and i i created this whole story in my head about how oh, they were probably they probably had one hit they played out in la all the time and you know they just never took and like they're probably you know fighting amongst the band and there's probably this great story about how they couldn't get along and they had a record deal ready to go and it was no they needed one more song for the soundtrack so mike gary getsman the one of the producers on the soundtrack and mike piccarillo went into a studio one night and recorded one more song for the soundtrack that was it that was it it was it was it was it was when i finally got the story it was a little it was a little (laughs) underwhelming but it's interesting to note that Gary Getzman went on to uh, work closely with Tom Hanks, and he's one of the executives over at Playtone. And it's interesting to know that you know, you know, that he's part of Playtone. That Boppin' Tonight kind of has that '50s '60s vibe that Tom Hanks did so well on uh, with uh, that thing you do. Yeah, but you know what? We should we might we might have to do this again because you're the only other person I know that really likes that movie. <laughs> Hey, hey, if you hey, if you want to do a that thing you do show, like I I would love that. I that's could talk that, about that that's de- that's definitely a movie for me. That when it's on, I watch it. Wherever I oh. wherever I come into it, if it's on, I'm gonna I, I'm there until it's over. And you want to, like I love the fact that there's an extended cut of the movie. Yeah, which is great. But like the theatrical cut, theatrical cut I think is just a perfect piece of film, not a wasted frame on it. But I love you know, 10 years later getting that extended cut because I fell in love with those characters. Like all those little bits were really just character things like, uh, with, um, I want to say it was Jimmy and, uh, Steve Zahn's character just fighting about where the a minor comes in in a song. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I've been, in I've been in that conversation with everybody I've been in a band with and it was, it just felt so real. So at this point, That's Jerry Dandridge has turned <laughs> Evil Ed into. I know we're gonna we're gonna finish this movie, Jay Blake. We're gonna finish it as we as Deanna and I say. As, as we digress, we gotta steer this. Yeah, movie. as I digress. Yeah. 
turns Evil Ed into a vampire. He's part of he's, he's part of his, his crew now with Billy Cole and Peter Vincent is trying to skip town. And uh, there's a funny scene where he uh, where the Evil Ed tricks him into letting him in the apartment, and that's how he gets the, the cross on the head. Yeah, which is an iconic Im- iconic image. Absolutely. I mean, on a lot of the like late era VHS copies of it, that's what's on the image. That's not that great poster art. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. just Evil Ed with the cross <laughs> on his head. It's so disturbing that image when you see it, like just it on really a box is. cover. It, it looks painful too. <laughs> and uh, so now, so so now they're going now now. Charlie's going to go well because now Jerry Dandridge kidnapped Amy from the discotheque yeah. with, sedu- his sweet, he, with his sweet dance moves. He seduced her they with a Paco Rabanne sweater, like and some Jacar Noir. Probably was wearing some Jacar Noir, and uh, you know she she he got her. Yeah. Did that Bella Lugosi stare? And we and we kind of enter the third act of this thing, which we're running yeah, out. Of, so we're, we're, we're running out of time, so unfortunately we got to kind of steamroll through it. But yeah, yeah. We're, so they get back, they get to the house, and like the. Um, Peter Vincent teams up with Charlie, and there's like they're both on the same page now. They know they have to get Amy out of there, and they both know they're dealing with vampires. And now the end of the movie is just, I mean, it's great. I mean, what else do we need to say about it other than, I mean, it's a lot of great special effects that happen. The, the movie's like a special effects reel. The uh, last third act is a special effects reel. We get the bat. We get the bat that a lot of people say was an unused special effect from Ghostbusters that was deemed too scary. Holland, Tom Holland told me that that was that's not true. Um, that that was made specifically for the movie because, and he still got it at his house. Yeah. Um, we have Billy Cole melting into a puddle of goo. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, that's we an have another because icon- we don't we don't really know what he is, and they never really explain it. He's a ghoul, I think, is what I've heard him described as. Yeah, like he's not, he's not a vampire. But he can he, walk around during the day. Yeah, and but he's not quite human, and we don't know really what the history is between him and Jerry. Um, you know, there's always kind of a little bit of a like they may be kind of lovers kind of thing. There's kind of a certain playfulness between, like you know, maybe they had a couple pops one night. You know, every experiment's in college, and Jerry Dandridge is ages old, so you don't know he could have been going to college in the seventies. You don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's very. Uh... <laughs> He just imagined I for some reason because you know the big thing with the I don't know why this popped into my head but the big thing with like the uh, you know the seventies Odd Couple show is they had to have that beginning explanation and narration because they were afraid everybody <laughs> would think they were gay <laughs> so they had to have this big explanation of like that Felix gets thrown out of his house and he moves in with his friend Oscar who's divorced and their roommates and I just imagine like that opening. Like with, 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 with Jerry Dandridge and Buddy, <laughs> not, not Buddy Cole, Billy Cole, <laughs> Buddy Cole, of course from the Kids in the Hall, not Buddy Cole, Billy Cole. <laughs> this like sitcom seventies sitcom explanation of why these two guys live together. Jerry Dandridge, Jerry Dandridge, a <laughs> average vampire from. But uh, yeah, you don't quite can a- do. Can two supernatural beings survive together in the <laughs> the, the city without killing each other? Uh, yeah, and I think one of the that's one of the great. Thi- oh, I think one of the beautiful things about this movie is that obviously Tom Holland's a fan of horror movies. This movie is definitely like a love letter to monster movies. 
for the for fans of those kinds of movies and the fact that like he manages to like uh you know crowbar in some kind of weird zombie ghoul monster and make a vampire a werewolf at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And you never, when I was a kid, never questioned it. And actually, I wouldn't even question it now. Like, I think the only reason I ever questioned what is Billy Cole is because there's so many forums online or like you listen to the audio commentary where other people mention it. And I just, I think it's just because it's a lot of it is nostalgia. Like, this movie just kind of takes grabs a hold of me and I just it's one of those movies like I don't even feel like I just watched it because I it's almost like muscle memory because I kind of know it so well yeah. like I know where the beats are going to happen yeah because um, so you get all these great special effects at the end and uh, well, you get Amy as a vampire which is another iconic image yeah horrifying that big, sm- <laughs> that big toothy smile yeah and I don't I don't quite understand uh like why she gets has red long red hair at the, at the end of the movie. <laughs> I always like yeah, Tom Holland was just they're almost done. They're like yeah, do whatever you want, guys. Make it look cool. I was like when I was, I was watching it because now it's you know a jaded <clears throat> you know guy that works exactly. in the works in the film and TV industry. I'm like I wonder if they just needed to put like a longer wig on her to like hide <clears throat> like where the makeup you attaches to her face or something. That's probably it. That, that that's probably exactly it. Uh, but it's a horrifying oh, no. image. I mean, the, the, that that oh, that giant it, mouth. It's so surreal looking. And the change is done so well. Like she just kind of, like kind of her head kind of bows down off camera, and then she comes up and it's there. Like and the audience sees it before Charlie sees it, I believe. Yeah. And you get you know and uh, you get his reaction, and you have Peter Vincent trying to knock down the door. Um, and I don't know, maybe they seem, it seems like they're playing a little loosey-goosey with the mythology that if they kill Jerry Dandridge before the end of the night that uh, she will no longer be a vampire. Yeah. But they, the mythology differs from movie to movie. So uh, you can't play, It's like time travel. Like Everybody's got their own theory <laughs> on time travel. Yeah, some great, some great moments. A lot of like funny little moments between uh, <clears throat> William uh, Ragsdale and Rodney McDowell. Uh, you know, very- well, there's a it has the iconic line. One of my favorite lines from any movie is "Welcome to Fright Night for real." Yeah, and I actually um, for Daily Grindhouse we did a thing about top fifty uh, characters, and I did Peter Vincent for number thirteen. And like, there's kind of a like Roddy McDowell's performance is so good because I do like how he's he, he's portrayed as such a loser throughout the film. But there's that moment towards the uh, the end where he. Uh, you know, he always played a fearless vampire hunter, but he was kind of, you know, kind of a sissy in real life. And when he gets to exclaim, you're out of time, Mr. Dandridge, when, you know, the sun's rising and, you know, he, he realizes that he has the faith to make the cross work. Yeah. Like, it's like, after all these years of killing vampires on film, he's just given his own life meaning, and that meaning is to kill real fucking vampires. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great moment because there's that plot device that the cross only works if the person holding it actually has faith. And we discover that that uh, Peter Vincent doesn't have faith in, 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 earlier in that scene. And by the end, the fact that he does. I mean, I'm a sucker for uh, for like that moment. It happens always in 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 like the superhero movies. But like that mo- the hero moment. Yeah, that hero moment, the living up to like potential. When- <laughs> To 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 compare like one of my favorite like Evil Dead Two that moment where they have that little just that little touch of like a hero's theme when he 
saws off the front of the shotgun. Yeah. And spins it around and puts it in his back. You know, it's like, you know, or like when Alice in Nightmare on Elm Street 4, like they basically do like a Rambo suiting up for a fight moment, like a, a little montage. Yeah. Where with a rock and roll guitar score, <laughs> you know, and they, yeah, and you have a great line that ends it out either fucking A or groovy or you're out of time, Mr. Dandridge. Yeah. That's always yeah. a favorite movie. There's, yeah. that, there's that moment where, you know, they're, they're now living up to the potential. And and they have and they real and they 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 own it, and I'm a sucker for it every time and every movement. Oh, every every time I'm I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. So then they get into the basement, and we get a nice nod to Nasferatu when Jerry Dandridge comes out of the coffin with the the cro- with the uh, stake in his heart. Yeah, in all of his glory as a you know great another more great monster makeup, and they just break all the windows in the basement, which. As you will find out from reading trivia on Internet Movie Database, light does not come in come into a basement like that. <laughs> oh, it's the movie. Like somebody figured that out. Like Neil deGrasse Tyson probably sat there and said, "Well, actually, <laughs> the way light, light wouldn't come into a basement." The... Like <laughs> and they blow Jerry Dandridge up real good. Spoiler: and alert. everything's nice. <laughs> yeah, everything's nice and everything's pleasant. And Jerry da- or um, Peter Vincent gets his job back. And he's hosting uh, Mars Needs Women, or Mars Wants Flesh, but it's actually Octoman, which is another one I couldn't figure out until the internet age. Like, I always wondered what that movie was that they were watching on Fright Night in Fright Night. Yeah. Uh, Because it's uh, Rick Baker's first big uh, special effects uh, showcase. Oh, there you go. Which is where he learned, he goes, never try, when they say, don't worry, it's only, they're only going to shoot it at night. Don't believe that. Because <laughs> I guess he did kind of a slipshot job on it because they're like, don't worry, it's only going to be shot at night. And then they shot the whole thing in the day. And you can just see this you know, guy in an octosuit that's pretty ridiculous looking. Yeah. And, and, we have, and, we, and the final line goes to Evil Ed where you see his red eyes flash because apparently he moved in the house after uh, Terry Dandridge blew up yeah. and says, you're so cool, Brewster. Which was uh, Tom Holland. I asked him about that, and I go, well, "Why was that the line?" And he goes, "You know, I wrote the script. It needed a button on it, and that was it." And then it launches into Jay Giles Band's Fright Night, and it's just kind of a cool. Like I love, I love when like a horror movie like that like smashes to like a cool rock song at the end. Like, it kind of leaves you like with a smile on your face. So yeah, so you know, Fright Night was part of an 80s vampire boom that was going on. You had Near Dark, you had you had uh, Lost Boys of course, which was probably the most successful out of the bunch, I think, and definitely probably, you know, has the biggest following these days. Well, yeah, well, it's interesting about the two of those like Fright Night and uh, Lost Boys. It's definitely deal, dealing with like this uh, like teenage thing, you know. In in, the, in a way, uh, you know, Fright Night is very much like, you know, I think it tried, I, and I think attempting to be it, at least to a certain extent, like the John Hughes of, of vampire movies. It comes it, up, it does have a certain niceness to it that's not really there in the Lost Boys. Like it has kind of more of a Lost Boys is very kind of rock and roll, very middle of the road. But I mean, the characters in uh, in Fright Night have that John Hughes kind of just every everyday teenager kind of vibe. Like, yeah. whereas you know the characters in Lost Boys, everybody looks cool. Yeah. You know, there's nothing cool about Charlie Brewster. 
And both are very, uh, you know, I think Fright Night is very, you know, music driven in a way that the Hughes movies are to a certain extent too. And I guess so is Lost Boys. Uh, you know, that soundtrack is pretty. Oh yeah, that's another popular soundtrack. I like the soundtrack to Fright Night better. I just, but that's because I'm more of like, I mean, I'm, I like pop rock, and that's that. That is all pop rock, and I think it fits very well with with the kind of notion of Fright Night. Fright Night's a very pop movie, yeah. I think, and you know, mentioned Near Dark. Now, what's interesting, I think, is that you know, you had like in '79, you had. Another, you had like the Frank Langella Dracula movie, but then you know we're talking about early '80s, and so even that comment by Roddy McDowell's character about the, you know, all the kids want to watch is you know, nubile young virgins being <laughs> hacked up by a guy, a maniac in a ski mask. Yeah, it's very much uh, in a, you know, we're we're in the slasher age, so Fright Night to a certain extent was, uh, you know, calling back to a a kind of monster movie genre that wasn't popular at the time. And I don't know if it's coincidence or what. I mean, because, I mean, obviously the popularity of Fright Night probably let something like Near Dark, uh, Near Dark and, uh, you know, Lost Boys get greenlit. But what's what I find interesting, when you look at, like, the movies of, like, 1985, you also have, um, like, Transylvania 65000 came out that year. <laughs> and Once Bitten with Jim Carrey comes out that oh year. Oh, my God. I've seen that one numerous times. Sure, <laughs> that's a that's a bit of a sleepover classic. Oh, I'd say I I would agree. That's a, that is exactly a sleepover classic. So there, it seemed like there was it was kind of time for like these more lighthearted monster movies. And then eighty seven, we not only see Lost Boys and Near Dark, but then we get the Monster Squad, um, which definitely fits squarely next to Fright Night. I think in its notion of it's it's very bre- both of those movies are kind of breezy. I would say, yeah. And Deanna and I did, uh, mo- and Deanna and I did Monster Squad in a past cast. So if you haven't heard that one yet, go check it out. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that would be an incredible double feature: Fright Night and Monster Squad. Oh, I think that's perfect. Sure. I mean, and you're talking about like the movies that were coming around '85, like Columbia. For as much as they didn't put much into Fright Night, like once they saw it. Like knew that they had a hit on their hands because there's a on the that Twilight Time Blu-ray, which is worth picking up if you can track it down. There was an inner office menu from me, memo from Robert Lawrence, uh, dated May of '85, and it suggested that Holland and his team start writing Fright Night Two right away. And that's that's a big deal considering the movie wasn't coming out until August. But the studio seemed to know that they had a hit, so despite the film not even being released, uh, they suggested that. The 80, August of 86, Fright Night being released in August of 85, Fright Night 2 would be, it would be great to have that out by the next year because you'd have, a, you'd have millions of dollars in marketing because the movie would be, the original would be hitting home video. And there's a, they compare it to like buying a novel and hiring a writer to adapt it. They, yeah. It's a funny line in the, in, the, in the memo. It says, the gamble is so small and the stakes so high. <laughs> and I don't know if Robert Lawrence was being clever or if that was just like you know talking about stakes yeah, yeah. being high, yeah, yeah. I mean, but they really wanted to get it out, and the sequel didn't come out. I don't think until '88, actually. Well, I mean, that's a whole. That's almost like a whole other podcast to talk about the sequel. I mean, <laughs> which I didn't. I didn't like as much. I, I haven't gone back and rewatched it. I remember not digging it when I was a kid, and felt like maybe I missed something. And outside of the bowling scene, yeah. I thought it was all kind of just. 
just a, a tired rehash of the original, but without any of the charm. And yeah. I think a lot of that probably had to do with Holland not coming back. Yeah, I mean, it's directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, who who I love, but uh, yeah, it certainly doesn't seem to have the charm of, of the first one. Um, but uh, yeah, so frightening, and it is very charming. I think that I think that's something to be said about it. Like I would never describe the Lost Boys or Near Dark as charming, but I would certainly going back to the Monster Squad. Monster Squad is very charming. Although I did just watch it for the first time since I was a kid, and it did not. I mean, it didn't hold up as well for me as I thought it was gonna. Yeah, like it. There's just big chunks that seem missing from that movie. Yeah. Like I love a short movie, but it just like when I was, and maybe it also has to do when you watch a movie when you're a kid, everything seems bigger and more expansive. Sure. And then when you're watching it as an adult and they're filming it on that same back lot, you're like, oh wow, everything <laughs> looks real small in this movie. Yeah. Um, but um, it's very, it's certainly very charming, and so is Fright Night, I think. Yeah, totally. And and uh, things can skate by on charm alone. I've been doing it for years. Exactly. Uh, let's see. Um, I, the only other notes that I wanted to mention were, like, again, from that test screening, uh, I guess somebody actually walked out of the theater and said, I smell money. And in parentheses on the memo, it says, I actually heard somebody say that. And the final comment, Bruno, the, the guy who um, sent this inner office uh, memo, his final comment, he said that his final comment was that, the film had a better crowd reaction than Ghostbusters, which was, of course, Columbia's hit from the previous summer. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was made for, like they say, $9.5 million. I think it ended up uh, collected $25 million at, uh, domestically. It was the highest grossing horror movie of that summer of 85 and the second highest grossing horror movie for the year just behind Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Which was huge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, love Elm, I love Elm, I love Elm Street too too. I know you guys love Elm Street too. I love Elm Street too. <laughs> well, you know, um, uh, score by my good buddy Chris Young. Uh, a very odd installment into the Elm Street series. Well, and that's what I love about it because a lot of people get mad at it because it's so different. But you have to look back at it. Most genre pictures, most, or most rather, most series, most trilogies, most don't become what they are until let's say the third episode. Like, once they found their footing. Yeah. So none of the rules were in place about Freddy or who he was yet. Like, the Freddy that most people remember isn't even the Freddy from the first movie. People remember the Freddy from part three and part four yeah. more than anything. Totally. And, um, um, this, uh, yeah, go ahead. There was, uh, there was talk of that it originally had, there was a different ending intended. For Fright Night? Yeah. Did you read about this? I don't. I, uh, refresh me. I may. I don't think I know about this. So apparently, in the script, it was, uh, you know, we have Charlie and Amy. Sometime after they're watching the TV's on, you got Peter Vincent, and uh, and instead of the movie that that they do play, he's playing a Dracula movie. I think in the script he's playing Dracula Strikes ba- uh, Strikes Again, and uh, there's something to do with. You know, because in the, in this one he gives a little bit of a shout out to Charlie in in the ending in the movie. And right, I said, to, let's let's leave the vampires alone for now, <laughs> eh, Charlie? And then I think it's this, to my recollection from what I was reading, it has something to do with like he introduces a vampire movie, and he's like, and if you want to see what a vampire movie looks, uh, what a vampire looks like for real, and then like he transforms into a vampire. I I think I'd heard that before, yeah, and. uh 
and then he like looks at this at the camera or something and says like hello charlie as they're watching it and then like freeze frames and then the credits roll kind of kind of deal um apparently that's was the ending in the script before it got rewritten uh which i i, I definitely I, like I like the theatrical ending better. I don't like Peter Vince. I don't like the hero becoming the villain like that because I really grew to like Peter Vincent throughout the movie. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I, I like the ending. I, I even like the fact that it sounds like they just took that audio from Evil Ed from earlier in the movie. It's a it's a cool callback, and like I said, like I didn't enjoy the sequel much. But like, if anybody's interested, I mean, I, I haven't been able to track them down online. If anybody wants to find me, you can find me at Mike Vanderbilt on Twitter. If anybody can get me copies of the old Now Comics series, like in digital form, I thought they they, they did a real bang up job on that. The art is pretty good; like it's cheap '80s comic book art. But you know, you get to follow. Uh, further adventures of Charlie Brewster and uh, Peter Vincent. And they don't just fight vampires. They fight aliens and werewolves and evil Ed comes back. And there's a lot of cool stuff in that comic <laughs> book series. From what I remember when I was a kid, I might not, again, it might not have hold up as well. Now they just reissued the soundtrack on vinyl through night fever music, which uh, they have a couple cool different editions. There's a picture disc. There's a couple different colored vinyls. The picture disc is certainly the coolest, and I'd say that's worth picking up if you're a fan of the movie. I mean, it was out of print for a long time. You couldn't yeah, find yeah. it on CD. I, I don't think it was ever issued on CD originally because that would have been 85, and I only had a tape that I found at a Sam Goody, like let's say around probably 92 or 93, yeah. is when I, and that was an accident. There's also a great, uh, there, one of the editions they put out of that also is a glow-in-the-dark vinyl. Yes! Which is very cool. Um, and uh, you can... Now, the soundtrack only features one bit of Brad Fidel's score, but you can, uh, I, I know that they reissued a two disc set, I think, that had both the soundtrack and the full score on a separate disc. Yeah, because I know. Which are both worth checking out. Because I know forever they didn't, you couldn't get that score. Oh, yeah, that was, yeah, I don't even, I don't think it was released. I think one of these great pop up companies that happen now that, just are putting out anything on vinyl. I did a, I wrote about a contest for AV Club last year. Like somebody was putting a song from the movie Joysticks on vinyl. <laughs> like, like, like that was their thing. And actually, it was funny because when I was writing a story, you know what song I would love to have a clean copy of, and I think you would agree with me. Uh, Some like it hot from Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> totally. Because I can't find a recording of that that doesn't come from the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a I'm a big weekend of Bernie's fan, so I, I even like part two. <laughs> well, Fright Night uh has a ninety one percent approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is pretty good. That's good to hear. Um like we said, Fright Night Two was uh directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. They didn't bring back Holland. Uh there was talk about Fright Night Three where uh Roddy McDowell wanted to bring Holland back and uh, they were talking to a different company in Columbia Studios, but the one that was run by uh, Jose Mendez. And what happened was his sons, uh, Menen- yes. Menendez, Lyle and Eric. The Menendez murders. Yeah, yeah. Ended up not just killing, they didn't just kill their parents, but they also killed the Fright Night series. And that's one of the reasons why Fright Night 2 didn't, I think there was one of the reasons why it might have been a delayed release. Uh, something had something to do with that movie or the distribution rights after 
and why it was hard to get for so long, the second one, but, uh, and it was also why the third one never ended, ended up getting made. Oh, that's, and it's, and it's, that's too bad. And that's too bad. Cause I think, I, I think I had legs for a third one. I mean, especially if Roddy McDowell and, uh, William Rags, they were coming back because that's much like the Phantasm movies, which I'm a big fan of. Like, I mean, even though there's only two Fright Night movies, but if you take into consideration the comic book adaptation, like, I like horror movies that follow the heroes. Yeah. As well, if, if fighting new villains or as well as the villain. Also, Waxwork and Waxwork 2 kind of do the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah, that's unfortunate there was never uh, an official Fright Night 3. Uh, there's massive UK uh, documentary about the movie. Yes, I wanted to bring that up because I, I wrote about their Kickstarter for AV Club titled You're So Cool, Brewster. And it's the same people who did the massive Hellraiser 2 documentary. I, that I have, out a couple I have the Hellraiser one. I might have to check this one out. Sometimes it's just like it's too much. I, I agree 100%. <laughs> you know, it's like, like, it's like six hours of fan material on, for on Hellraiser. Yeah, there's a fan documentary for everything. And like now that being said, like I'm sitting here saying it's too much, but like, you know, there's other people that think like the 108 minute cut of that thing you do. No, I don't need it. I don't. But I'll sit and watch that and pour over that. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I'll probably do the same thing with the the Fright Night documentary. Like, you kind of inspired me. Actually, I was actually thinking, you know, I have a little bit of knowledge on Fright Night, and I know some of these people. Maybe I should write a book about Fright Night. So nobody out there, st- anybody listening to this podcast, don't steal my idea. I'm writing a book about Fright don't, Night. I'm telling you yeah, all right now. That's uh, <laughs> it's calling it. It's now copywritten because it's been recorded. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take a copy of this podcast and mail it to myself. So therefore, I uh, it'll 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 set precedent in court. We mentioned earlier the remake from 2011 with uh, the late Anton Yelchin or Yelkin, and uh, who was great in Green Room. Did you see Green Room? I have not seen Green Room, Green Room yet. Uh, watch it right now tonight. I, I like, will you... as soon as. Soon as you go to sleep, <laughs> <laughs> that was one of those movies that when I saw it at Fantastic Fest, I thought for sure there was going to be a hit because I didn't think anybody could not like that movie. Yeah, and it just didn't it didn't take off. But maybe posthumously he will have some success with that one. And I didn't like the remake that much. I only watched little bits and parts of it on a Sci-Fi Channel one afternoon. Well, I saw it. it just, I, I think I saw it. I think it's just because the first one is so close to my heart. Sure, really sure. I saw it at the movies in 3D, and it was pretty intense. I like it a lot. David Tennant, I think, is really funny in it. Um, you know, it's what I like about it is that yes, there's a lot of nods. The characters are named the same thing. There's a lot of little nods to the original, but it's really more about like taking that idea, that premise. And then making their own movie out of that premise, which I kind of respect instead of just trying to redo what Tom sure. Holland did. And I don't think like nothing is so sacred that it can't be remade. I mean, some are better, some are worse. I mean, there's for every the thing, you know, there's a. Uh, uh, like I mean, I, Ghostbuster, the new Ghostbusters movie. I think my Daily Grindhouse review basically gave it a C plus. But the more I think about it, like I don't know, it just it fell flat. Like for everything, there's a million you know Ghostbuster reboots that don't <laughs> that just don't click. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and, um, and there's a f- not saying that you can't try it. Like, remake it. See see if you can do better. And there's a uh, there's another uh, there's a hell and there's a Fright Night two from 2013. There's- which I haven't. Which is seen. not a remake of Fright Night Two, but a sequel to the remake of Fright Night. But I've heard it's not even really a sequel to the remake of Fright Night. I haven't seen it, <laughs> but from what I was, I can't imagine they got any of the cast back because it's some 
goofy direct to video shit. But for what I from what I read, I'll have to just watch it just because I'm curious now. Because after what I read, it was like it's not a sequel to the 2011 remake of Fright Night. It's a movie that is somehow playing with the history of the original two movies. That's what I've heard. Really? Yeah, but I don't. Now I'm kind of. But I, I'm kind of fascinated. By but it. I haven't seen it, so I can't vouch for that. That's just maybe I'll go to Walmart. I'm sure it's in Dollar Bin <laughs> over there. On DVD though, not on Blu-ray. I'm I'm not shelling out the money for the Blu-ray <laughs> on that one. Well, anyway. Well, I'm yeah. I'm glad we got to sit and talk about this. This was, I mean, I, uh, another supersized episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Yeah, we cannot seem to get away from like breaking the two-hour mark. <laughs> it. You know what though? It's like. I don't personally, as a fan of the show, I like the longer episodes because I can sit and listen to you guys talk about it for hours. And like, I'm glad I'm appearing on the show now because as I'm in the car, I'm sometimes having conversations with you guys. Like when you can't come up with a name or something, or you know, or uh, like, no, 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 that's that's that person, that's that person, that's that person. <laughs> and I immediately have to get on Twitter while I'm driving. Okay, no, I, I'm sorry, I don't use my phone when I drive. Nobody does that. Yeah. And yeah. like, no, 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 you're wrong. That was this was you know, I just like getting in on it. So the two hour one's nice because it'll take up my whole weekend, like driving to and from work. Yeah. You know, well, it's I have, the, it's, uh, Dion and Jay Blake, you know, uh, keep me occupied. Well, we appreciate it, and we're glad we can make your travels uh, a little more bearable. Oh, it, it it really is, and like I mean, I've I've listened to just about all of them. I've skipped a couple of them because I keep me like I've never seen Mad Love, so I keep meaning to watch Mad Love so I can go back and listen to you guys talk about Mad Love. I think Same thing with uh, Remo Williams. <laughs> the Remo Williams one is a it's for me it's a shocker that it didn't do that that it didn't do better. I mean, it was our early one. You for guys us. keep you guys bring that up every week. Like, why is this the one that's not climbing the charts? <laughs> but. Uh... I was also, I knew that I thought that that was going to be like a big record breaker for us, but it was like nobody cared about Remo Williams. The adventure begins, but uh, this was a lot of fun. Hopefully, you know, we'll have you on again, and we'll get to have Dion in on it too, and we'll have a nice, uh, we'll have you know a three way. I love filling in for Dion on this episode, but I really miss not having him here. And the worst part is, I'm going to have nothing to listen to this weekend because I'm not going to want to listen to myself. Uh, <laughs> talk about Fright Night. I would have much rather heard Dion and you talk about Fright Night. Well, I think <laughs> I know Dion will be happy. We'll we'll be we'll be uh, we'll feel good by that sentiment. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Um, let me just uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Vanderbilt. I was I was always, I'm always an early adapter to social media, so all of my stuff is usually my name, and I'm also an egomaniac, so I want my name attached to everything. I want people to know. Who did that? So Twitter, Mike Vanderbilt. Add me on Facebook. Look, look for me at the AV Club. Add Daily Grindhouse. Um, Night Flight. Consequence of Sound. The Drinks on Monday podcast. Revenge of the Pod People Cat podcast. The Modern Day Rippers. That's my punk band. They'd be mad if I didn't mention them. And the Romeros, which is my power pop band that features a horn section. <laughs> I think I got all my plugs out of them. I, 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 I warned them ahead of time in the beginning of this episode. But there's so there's so much too much to keep track of. You know what though? You know what? You know what? And okay, one more thing. I I spent so much of my twenties like kind of fucking around and you know trying to be creative and trying doing this and trying doing that. And in my thirties, I've caught a couple breaks, particularly with the writing thing. And I just feel like you know what? If I want to get it done, I've got just got to keep doing it. So 
one of these things is going to click. <laughs> one of these things is going to start paying me real well, so I hope. I so even at the 10 bar. <laughs> so I always say, you got to put a lot of pokers in the fire and figure out which one's going to be the going to be the one that, that works out. Uh, Saturday Night Movie <laughs> Sleepovers. Uh, we're on Twitter at Sat Sleepovers. Uh, we're on Facebook. Uh, our website is uh, SaturdaySleepovers.podwit.com. And... Uh, I, we don't talk about Fright Night in it, but uh, you can get my book, Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. On It's a-, a terrific book, too. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> Every horror fan should have it on their shelf. That's- or in their Kindle. I don't know. How, I mean, for those who skewer younger. It's, uh, we're going to have the e-books going to be coming out at some point. Oh, very nice. Very so, nice. Uh, uh, that, uh, you heard it from Mike Vanderbilt. Go... Uh, <laughs> Go by Scored to Death. And uh, thanks a lot, Mike. This was a lot of fun. Oh, you're so cool, Jay Blake. And uh, remember, this is Fright Night for real. Later. Later.